us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Jacob Kamaunu and I am a restaurateur. My name is Mike Mello and I have light perception so I can tell like that the lights are on or the studio lights are on but I can't like see anything else. I can't see anything, no lights, no color, anything. Totally dark. Are you racist? I no. Are you racist? No. I would like to think that I'm not. However, there are those stereotypes that it been instilled in everyone. I am racist because I think every white person is racist. I participate in institutions, like I benefit from capitalism, which 
was built on slavery and racism. I've experienced um, racism, but I don't let it bother me. I think allowing it to affect me um, gives them the, the upper hand. Are you racist? No. Why? Because I can't see. <laughs> Blindness does sometimes take those racial cues out of society because if I can't tell by someone's voice or accent or whatever, like I have no idea. I've noticed with a lot of people I meet, I don't really find out what their race is until a while after we meet. You know, we don't necessarily go around asking, oh, are you black, are you white, you know. Um, you are who you are as far as I'm concerned. I work with a person who's Japanese, but I would have no idea unless she told me. Like, there's just no, like, cue that I have. I can tell more or less if the person's Caucasian, black, Mexican, you know, what, whatever it might be. By their voice, accent. Like seeing someone's skin color, I think, is not the only way that we differentiate people's like culture or race. I can pick out dialects and sometimes try to associate them with what race they might be. I wish I could just completely just ignore it, but I can't help it. If I'm walking down the street and I hear a couple of people and they're like aggressively talking to each other and it's slang and vulgar speech and it's not eloquent, I naturally sometimes think, oh, those people might be black because of the, their accent. I shouldn't think like that, but there are natural stereotypes out there in the world. Can you tell someone's race by their voice? No. What do you think my race is? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You could hear the way someone speaks and make a, a determination about them that could be completely inaccurate because you just don't know. I've had experiences where I've known, you know, a person for probably a year, year and a half or so, and, um, they never knew I was black. Ironically, this was another, another black person. It was like, you're, bl you're black? And I was, yeah, yeah, I'm black. <laughs> so. <laughs> I believe there's racism within the blind community because there's racism everywhere and the blind community is no exception. I think it's, a, it's their upbringing, how they were raised. I grew up in North Idaho and I wasn't exposed to a lot of people from different cultures. And I grew up in a home with my, my dad who was pretty racist in the term I want to use, but pretty vocal about identifying people by their race, like it's just how he grew up. I'm from, from India and, and my dad, <clears throat> he's a uh, different complexion and they got married each other and they are like a pretty, you know, happy couple and it's a good example for us, you know. Have you ever experienced racism within the blind community? If I did, I probably didn't recognize it because I don't look for it. The issues I've seen the blind community kind of take on, um, maybe they tend to be more like white issues. One thing I haven't seen the blind community collectively work on is housing justice. And I'm complicit in this too, right? Because I'm a blind person, right? So I could be the person to organize and I'm not. People who are blind come in all shapes, sizes, economic backgrounds, beliefs, and some of them are racist. That's something that we, as a society in general, blindness excluded, need to work on being better at. I think to myself, if I were up here in front of you right now, and this is going to become very important as you move, I move into the other slides. Um, if I stomped a puppy to death out here, up here, just a little puppy, and stomped it right here to death in front of you, most of you would need therapy. And I would be arrested probably faster than killing a black man. 
for killing the puppy. Now, I want you to look at this photo very closely, and I want you to see who's in it. More important than the man hanging, because you've got to understand the lynchings that occurred in America happened after slavery, not during. Thousands of lynchings happened after slavery, because this is a reaction to white fear of what we would do once free. But we didn't create a vigilante group to take out white people, but they did create a vigilante group to take us out now that we're free. See, that happened after slavery. They were called the what? The Ku Klux Klan. They don't wear hoods anymore. They wear suits. But they're alive and well all over the world, even here. So look at who's in the picture. I want you to look at this little girl in particular. You can't see her closely, but she's actually grimacing, like smirking. Now, remember, let's go back to the puppy concept here. She would be loathed and torn up probably if this was a puppy, which means he's less than that because she's not disturbed. This little girl is not, is not disturbed by this, but she should be, shouldn't she? People always ask me, they go, Joy, what was the impact on white people? There it is. Right there. Can't feel any empathy for him. None. Zero zip. There's a little one back here, even smaller. Because whatever she's been taught or told socialized to believe makes him no longer human. That's the greatest danger to white people is that they can't feel it. And there's a reason why white people can't feel what we're talking about. My God, what would you then feel? It's tough. So I've got to believe, oh, it's all over now. It's not my fault. I don't benefit. It's not a big deal. Let's move on. It's not all of those things. But we don't say that to Jewish people. I dare you. But you have to understand, when you unearth this one, that's what we did to our children. Let's move forward. This is a similar photo to the one that uh, is used in um, Denzel's movie. Now, and again, most important, this is a man that's being burned. Also, I won't read the depiction, but there are newspaper accounts of this. It's written in a book called 100 Years of Lynching by Ginsburg. No pictures, just newspapers that say not only did they burn him, they decapitated him, cut him into pieces, and used parts of his body as things to put on mantles. So people would say, get me a tongue, would you, or a liver, a little crisp, so I could put it on the mantle. Now, again, I want you to look at the folks. I want you to look at who's here. We're not talking about the toothless, big gut, hooded wonder, are we? We're looking at plain old, common, dressed up folks. They're squeezing, please, I want my picture taken. Are you following me? This is somebody's cousin, uncle, somebody. And the ability to do that, dehumanize this man and rob them of their humanity all at the same time. All at the same time. That is the most dangerous, treacherous thing that can happen. What did Hitler do? He dehumanized human beings, put babies in ovens. Anything that robs us of our humanity is a danger to everyone. 
And that is what's going on with people of African descent all over the world because not only did it get done here, but who did we tell the entire world we told these people don't deserve any value? Everyone wants to be American. For the addicts, it's a relentless game of cat and mouse. They are driven by desperation. The police raids are just token efforts. Clear. Those like Tara, who live only for the next fix, fear not the police. Come on out. Come on out. With your hands up. Let me see. Let me see your hands. 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 She fears instead only the cravings coursing through her system. Walk backwards. 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 Stop. No one, not even these officers, believe that America can arrest its way out of the epidemic of heroin addiction sweeping this nation. What causes, say, heroin addiction? This is a really stupid question, right? It's obvious. We all know it. Heroin causes heroin addiction. Here's how it works. If you use heroin for 20 days, by day 21, your body would physically crave the drug ferociously because there are chemical hooks in the drug. That's what addiction means. But there's a catch. Almost everything we think we know about addiction is wrong. If you, for example, break your hip, you'll be taken to a hospital and you'll be given loads of diamorphine for weeks or even months. Diamorphine is heroin. It's in fact much stronger heroin than any addict can get on the street because it's not contaminated by all the stuff drug dealers dilute it with. There are people near you being given loads of deluxe heroin in hospitals right now. So at least some of them should become addicts. But this has been closely studied. It doesn't happen. Your grandmother wasn't turned into a junkie by her hip replacement. Why is that? Our current theory of addiction comes in part from a series of experiments that were carried out earlier in the 20th century. The experiment is simple. You take a rat and put it in a cage with two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with heroin or cocaine. Almost every time you run this experiment, the rat will become obsessed with the drugged water and keep coming back for more and more until it kills itself. But in the 1970s, Bruce Alexander, a professor of psychology, noticed something odd about this experiment. The rat is put in the cage all alone. It has nothing to do but take the drugs. What would happen, he wondered, if we tried this differently? So he built Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. It's a lush cage where the rats would have colored balls, tunnels to scamper down, plenty of friends to play with, and they could have loads of sex, everything a rat about town could want and they would have the drugged water and the normal water bottles. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, rats hardly ever use the drugged water. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. But maybe this is a quirk of rats, right? Well, helpfully, there was a human experiment along the same lines, the Vietnam War. 20% of American troops in Vietnam were using a lot of heroin. People back home were really panicked because they thought there would be hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when the war was over. But a study followed the soldiers home and found something striking. 
They didn't go to rehab. They didn't even go into withdrawal. 95% of them just stopped after they got home. If you believe the old theory of addiction, that makes no sense. But if you believe Professor Alexander's theory, it makes perfect sense. Because if you're put into a horrific jungle in a foreign country where you don't want to be, and you could be forced to kill or die at any moment, doing heroin is a great way to spend your time. But if you go back to your nice home with your friends and your family, it's the equivalent of being taken out of that first cage and put into a human rat park. It's not the chemicals, it's your cage. We need to think about addiction differently. Human beings have an innate need to bond and connect. When we are happy and healthy, we will bond with the people around us. But when we can't, because we're traumatized, isolated or beaten down by life, we will bond with something that gives us some sense of relief. It might be endlessly checking a smartphone, it might be pornography, video games, Reddit, gambling, or it might be cocaine. But we will bond with something because that is our human nature. The path out of unhealthy bonds is to form healthy bonds, to be connected to people you want to be present with. Addiction is just one symptom of the crisis of disconnection that's happening all around us. We all feel it. Since the 1950s, the average number of close friends an American has has been steadily declining. At the same time, the amount of floor space in their homes has been steadily increasing. To choose floor space over friends, to choose stuff over connection. The war on drugs we've been fighting for almost a century now has made everything worse. Instead of helping people heal and getting their life together, we have cast them out from society. We have made it harder for them to get jobs and become stable. We take benefits and support away from them if we catch them with drugs. We throw them in prison cells, which are literally cages. We put people who are not well in a situation that makes them feel worse and hate them for not recovering. For too long, we've talked only about individual recovery from addiction. But we need now to talk about social recovery, because something has gone wrong with us as a group. We have to build a society that looks a lot more like Rat Park and a lot less like those isolated cages. We are going to have to change the unnatural way we live and rediscover each other. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Based on the CIA's data, the country this is the highest This video is a collaboration with Johan Hari, the author of the book. Years old. In the United States, it drops to about 80. In Canada, about 82. In the United Kingdom, around 81. Across the world, this number can fluctuate dramatically and drop all the way down to the low 50s in certain less developed countries. But for the sake of this video, let's assume your life expectancy is on the higher side of the world's average and that you will have no incidents of health complications or tragedies and that you will live to 82 years old. 82 years on this planet as yourself, not too bad, but that's from birth. In terms of your remaining time in life, we have to subtract however old you are right now from 82. For the sake of this video, let's say you are 22 years old, as that is generally an age when a lot of people fully begin their careers. After subtracting that, at this point, you now have 60 more potential years of life, which equates to 21,900 days or 525,600 hours. Still not too bad. But if you get an average of 8 hours of sleep per night, 175,200 of those hours disappear, and you now have just less than what is equal to 40 years of waking life left. That brings your life expectancy down 20 years. That's kind of scary, but it gets a lot scarier if the following is true for you. A 2017 survey indicated that about 50% of U.S. workers describe themselves as unsatisfied or unhappy in their job. 
In another 2017 study conducted worldwide, when asked anonymously, 85% of workers admitted to disliking or hating their job. At such a large percentage, it is rather likely that one of these people might be you. Or perhaps you don't necessarily hate or dread your job, but you find yourself rarely ever enjoying it or feeling inspired by it, and are always wishing for the weekend, always wanting the week to be over and for it to be Friday night. If this is the case and your life enjoyment is based almost entirely on the weekend, let's see what happens when we subtract all the weekdays from your remaining 40 years of life. There is an average of 260 workdays in a year, not including holidays. After subtracting those across your remaining 40 years, your number of days goes from 14,600 all the way down to 4,200, leaving you with only about 11 years. But if you figure you retire at an average age of around 63, you might say that you should get some of those days back. But if you also figure that in the US, the chance of having a disability or mental impairment is 68% for people over the age of 65, then this age isn't exactly a time of your life to hold out for and claim as years filled with happiness and enjoyment. So in fact, I would argue that in terms of desirable life, we should actually take at least a portion of those days away. First, let's give you them all back. But then let's consider that after the age of 65, as you grow older and older, the likelihood of developing health conditions or having existing health conditions worsen only increases. So as a rough, generalized average across all the years after retirement, all the way up until death, let's say a person has somewhere around two good, healthy, enjoyable days out of every seven. Now you are exactly right back where you were with 11 years of remaining life. In living for the weekend, you went from what first sounded like a decent 60 years of remaining life all the way down to only 11. And as an extra kicker, what if you have weekends that aren't that good? Weekends where you have to do things that you don't want to do, like house chores, yard work, dealing with annoying personal stuff, or even going into work to catch up on things. That's at least another year or more off of your remaining life. If you are 22, your waking life expectancy for life you want to live is now equivalent to around the age of 32. Regardless of your age, who you are, what you do, or the exact accuracy of these numbers to your life, if you live for the weekends, the point holds true. The idea that anyone would accept to live a life where this amount of it is wished away, where such a huge quantity of time is spent not wanting that time to happen, where such a small percentage is spent enjoying it and living in the moment. For anyone that has any sliver of hope in not living like this, it is borderline insanity to accept. Sure, there are responsibilities we must attend to in life. Sure, there are things we are going to have to do that we don't always want to do. Sure, every day of our job and career can't always be fun or how we want it to be. But to work a job or be in a career or be at a company that you don't enjoy or find fulfillment in at least a majority of the time, you are essentially signing away most of your life. Life is extremely short. If you do out all of the math and consider every little trivial or self-maintenance oriented thing we spend time doing, even if you love what you do for work and don't subtract all the weekdays from your remaining life, the time we have is still frighteningly short. So it truly is so important that we do not give it away, that we are careful and conscious of what we exchange it for, that we do not let outside pressures from family, friends, or society convince us to just give it away blindly and choose jobs, careers, companies, or lifestyles that we don't personally enjoy or resonate with. That we don't become easily distracted or persuaded by short-term glitz and glamour that we know we don't really need. And that we try our best to avoid accepting anything less or making big mistakes that force us to have to. If you feel like you are constantly wishing for the weekend, only for it to come, and then in a blink of the eye, it ends and you are back at the same starting point on Monday, waiting for the weekend all over again. If you feel like you are anywhere close to living a life where you dislike almost every day of what you do, throwing each day into the trash of wasted time, perhaps you should spend some of your time trying to figure out how to make sure you don't waste any more of it. The 19th century 
Karl Marx talked Thank about alienation, which is a separation, uh, being a stranger to something. And uh, you're an alien to something. And Marx said there were four, aliena four alienations in this culture. One is we alienated from nature. Well, at a conference dedicated to looking at the physical and the natural environment, we don't, I don't have to say much to you to show how alienated we are from nature when we're destroying nature itself. The second alienation is from other people. And that means we have less contact, we have less intimacy, we have less trust. We have less of a sense of relationship. And that, of course, as I've shown you, leads to increased propensity to illness, physical and mental. We're alienated from our work. A lot of people no longer do work that has any meaning to them. And that means that, and since human beings are productive creatures, we really are created in the image of God. We're meant to create. When we do work that's not creative, that doesn't reflect who we are, that imposes depression, anxiety, um, a sense of meaninglessness. And when we have a sense of meaninglessness, we'll want to substitute that sense of meaninglessness or that sense of meaning that we've lost by all kinds of other activities. And then we get all hung up on how we look or how people feel about us, what we can obtain, what we can possess, what successes we can achieve. In other words, all the false uh, substitutes which cannot possibly compensate us for the lack of genuine meaning. And of course, what this society does, it sells us a lot of products that substitute for that loss of meaning. In fact, much of the economy is based on a loss of meaning in our culture. Finally, and most importantly, we become alienated from ourselves. Well, let me ask you a question here, and I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you had the following experience? That you had a powerful gut feeling about something, you didn't pay attention to it, and you were sorry afterwards. Please put your hand up if you have. Okay? I think the eyes have it. If I asked you the obverse question, as to how many people have had a powerful gut feeling, you ignored it, and you were glad about it afterwards, how many would not put your hand up? Well, I'm not sure. I'm seeing very few hands here. Well, that means to say, now, you know what you're telling me? You're telling me that at some point in your childhood, you got separated from yourself. Because no infant is born without gut feelings. To infants are totally connected to their gut feelings. Have you ever met a two-day-old who didn't know how to express their gut feelings? <laughs> and that means that in this culture, something very powerful happens to alienate you from your true self because the world couldn't stand who you really were. And your parents were too stressed themselves to honor and recognize who you really were. Just as a parent, I did that to my kids without meaning to. And then we become alienated from ourselves. We shut down our gut feelings. And our gut feelings are not luxuries, you know. They tell us what is right and what is wrong. They tell us what is dangerous and what is friendly. They tell us what is safe and what is dangerous. And they tell us what is true and what is false. So when we're alienated from our gut feelings, we have no longer have a sense of reality, no longer a sense of truth. Well, the good news is, the good news is that human beings can regain their sense of connection to themselves, just as we can regain our sense of connection to our nature. And um, empathy, which is a genuine human quality, is in us. We're actually wired for empathy. Even rats are wired for empathy. 
When you stress rats, rats in the laboratory by shocking their feet with electricity, they're more stressed watching other rats being shocked than when they're shocked themselves. Their stress hormone levels are higher. That's our nature as human beings. So contrary to the myth in our culture that we're separated individual, uh, aggressive, competitive creatures, we're actually wired for empathy, wired for connection, wired for love, wired for um, compassion. So really, to move forward, all we have to do, all we have to do, not an easy task, but it's certainly available to us, is to get back to our true nature. Thank you. Thank you for watching. What's up, family? A white teen is in custody following the death of a popular black Alabama sheriff who was killed in the line of duty on Saturday night. According to AL.com, Lowndes County Sheriff Big John Williams was responding to a call from a convenience store owner that needed assistance dispersing a crowd lottering in front of the store. Big John was shot after he approached one of the vehicles and asked the guy, why is your music so loud? Boom, out of here. He left behind a wife and two children. Now here's where it gets interesting. Following a three-hour manhunt, they're looking everywhere. 18-year-old William Chase Johnson appears out of the night walking toward the scene brandishing a gun the gun that he killed Big John with they make the arrest not a stain on him not a stain not an abrasion nothing no bullets piercing his skin no black eyes nothing and he killed a police officer what we want to know family is where is the consistency if all of these excuses they make for killing black folks are valid well, they should be valid for everybody else, especially a cop killer. Somehow, they find a way to de-escalate and restrain. I mean, man, it is absolutely amazing. Hmm. So, yeah, Dude happens to be from Montgomery, Alabama, and his daddy is a cop. So the son of a cop kills a cop. Now this dude, William, has a criminal record, minor, but a criminal record nonetheless. He got popped for some brass knuckles and he got uh, for uh, possession of brass knuckles and another case he had for, what was it? They said he was uh, 
in possession of alcohol. So a minor in possession of alcohol. Those are his cases. What do y'all think going to happen to him? Do you think he's going to get the death penalty? You think they'll give the son of a cop the death penalty? You know he's going to do time. You got to do the time. Because, you know, they got a different set of laws for police officers when a cop get killed versus just one of us. I mean, we just regular people. We just people. We, we you know, we commodity. So we just, uh, the way they see it, we're pretty much nobody. <laughs> it's us against them. Well, them against us. That's how they do it, right? That's the way they think about it. By all accounts, dude was a wonderful man. Everybody in the community, black and white, is saluting dude, saying he was a great guy and he tried to make things right. He tried to do the right thing. Tried to make Lowndes County a good place to live, a good wholesome place to live. Didn't work out that way. That ain't the way Oh, William saw it. William saw it like, I got to eliminate this dude. He's no good. Another thing that's interesting about this case is the similarity in the names. So the cop who got killed name is John Williams. The guy who kills him name is William Johnson. Weird, right? Now, you may not be familiar with Sheriff Big John Williams' name. However, perhaps you're familiar with his work. Back in 2000, he arrested Jamil Abdullah Alameen. Does that name ring a bell to you? Jamil Abdullah Alameen is formerly known as H. Rap Brown, the leader of the Black Panthers back in the 60s. Big John arrested him in 2000 and he was subsequently convicted for killing an Atlanta police officer. So Big John arrested a black revolutionary. Make of what you will with that information. No more talk. You know, this, this, this revolution is filled with so many ironies, really. Uh, first you tell us that it is manly to keep your word, all right? If you are a man, you keep your word. And now all of the black people in this country are demanding, and even the black people in the whole world are demanding, is that you keep your word. You told us we were free. Well, then show us that we're free. You told us that there is justice, equality for all in this country. Well, then stick to your word. And let us see the justice and equality for all. Or else admit to us that you're not a man. You're a worm. You're afraid of us. You're afraid to give us equal stand. You're afraid that if you give us equal ground that we will match you and we will override you. And if that's what you're afraid of us, then, then tell us that just what you're afraid of. But don't keep hiding it from us and, and holding this up to us. And every time we ask you for something, you give us a little bit of something. And it's all tokenism. We don't want tokenism. And there are most black men in this world that don't want charity. And yet still every time we ask you for something, you give us a little piece, a little piece. You're playing games with us. We're not children. 
We're, we're big men. I've seen my father have to put up with all kinds of stuff. He was a big man. He raised a family. He went down south, and he had to go around to the back door with his wife. We're not asking for anything. We're not asking for any favors. All we want is what's ours. Now, there are many black veterans who are coming back, and they're mad. They're angry. Do you think that they're going to sit down through this? Our fathers didn't have the knowledge that we had. They sat through it. But there are other black youth that are not going to sit through it. We know about Che. We know about uh, Fannin. We've read the books of our revolution. We've listened to Mao and his quotations. We know where we stand. We're not going to sit for it. We're asking, and if we ask and we don't get, we're prepared to stand up and take it. If I ask a man, I tell a man I am hungry. I tell him I am cold. And I ask him to do something about my condition. And this man holds a loaf of bread right in front of me so I can see it. And I keep asking him, I'm begging him to please give me a slice of the loaf of bread. I am hungry. Then it is known by every psychologist that the next step in the progression is I am going to knock him upside the head and take the bread from him. I'm not going to starve to death. All we're asking, no one wants to see blood. No one likes the smell of blood. No one wants war. Anyone who's been in war doesn't want war. Everyone knows what it is to see the inside of a man's gut hanging out and see your friends die, see relatives die. No one wants to regress back to the state of mind where you have to think it's all for the cause, therefore my mother has to die, my wife has to die, my brothers and sisters have to die. No one wants that. But you're pushing us to it. You're leaving us no choice. We're asking, we're begging. The students up at Columbia, they ask. The brothers down south ask. The brothers in Latin America, the brothers in Africa, they're all asking. All they're doing is asking. Our fathers asked. Our grandfathers asked. The presidents of our universities, our colleges, had to go to your back doors to beg that their children be given just enough money so that they could be taught something to live off. And, and yet still, they ask and ask and ask, and you refuse to give them anything. Now, we're, all, we're just about out of patience. We're not going to ask anymore. The news media says that it's only the young that are militant, only the young that want this and want that. Okay, but we're 40% of the black population now. Or we were a year ago, and still yet we're climbing. Before long, we'll be 50%, 55%, then we'll have the command. We're not going to take it. We're not going to take sitting in, in rotten parks and in, in, in places that just aren't fit for living. We're not going to take it. There's a limit to a man's patience, and everyone knows that God, Christ, heaven, everyone knows that what we're asking is not a million dollars. What we're asking for is humanity. We're asking to be allowed to live like human beings. And God, you tell us that this is too much to ask. You're sick. You're definitely sick. How can you tell me that it's too much to ask to be a human being? Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Real Life, the radio show. I am your host, Jenna Capriot, alongside my partner, Brother Roz. Brother Roz, how you doing this evening? Hey, peace. Greetings to you and to all other callers and listeners. 
I'm good. I'm good. It's great to be back with everyone and um, be able to chop up some of these things that we got to listen to. And um, yeah, it's great. How are you doing? Man, it's cold and wet down here in Tennessee, man. It's warmer and wet up here. <laughs> Thank goodness it's not cold. <laughs> but so I know what you mean. We are on for another night. Uh, I thought it started out interesting with the uh, the blind people discussing racism. Yes. And only the uh, the blind white girl and the blind black man admitted to racism. Everybody yep. else had excuses. Yep. <laughs> even though even though they gave examples of how they would practice, they still denied. That's a major part of, um, I think, what it means to be white, is to deny everything. Because, <laughs> I mean, you, you have all the power, so whether you admit to it or not, some white people are bold enough to admit certain things because they know they're in a position of power. So really, what can the person they're talking to really do about the fact that they have the this position in the system where they're pretty much at the top by default and you're at the bottom by default? Um, it's funny because I've actually seen white people with mental illness practice racism people with autism, people with Down syndrome. I mean, personally seen this. <laughs> so, I mean, as as long as the person is white and they're provided the concept of what it means to be white in the system that white people have created, then you're going to get racism. Um, it was something one of the, the blind white females said, in her opinion, all white people are racist. Yeah. And I remember hearing this recently from another white person, who's, um, including uh, Vlad, Vlad TV. He said, you cannot be born in America and be classified as white and not be racist. And I think that's probably the main reason um, you hear like Neely Fuller and, and um, Dr. Dr. Wilson would always say, either consciously or unconsciously. Because white people don't have to be conscious when they practice racism. It can be just an automatic response. So even though the person, let's say it might be a white person who doesn't overtly practice racism, where they walk around saying, oh, I hate black people and I hate these people or whatever the case may be. But by default, they'll have mannerisms and actions that still fall in line with that because they don't have the, they have the luxury of not having to care as white people. It's, it's the victims, the, the non-white people who have to literally think about everything and prepare their children for what it's going to be like in, in the real world. And when they go to school, white people don't have to do any of that. They just pretty much sail through life unless um, they have some unfortunate event or they happen to be born in a poor white family, then they might be able to identify with some of the struggles of black people. But still, when, when in public, they're still white. So right. they could be dirt poor, but they'll still be treated as a white person, regardless of that, depending on who they come in contact with. Because I've seen white people be very um disgusted with uh other white people like homeless white people i've seen that in new york all my life but they'll pretty much almost disown them <laughs> they'll look at them like they're pretty much like black folks um when they see other homeless white people they don't they don't have any shame about it they don't they feel like those people don't represent them and you can see it in how they look at them and how they treat them so i'll, I'll just say um i found it interesting that that blind, blind white woman understood racism for what it is, and I think she was the one who was truly yeah. honest in that situation. I that think the other she... ones might have been practicing race, racism by omission. In other words, they're just not going to even 
admit to anything. But go ahead. I'm sorry. No, nah, I believe her exact words is she believes she's racist because she's white and she thinks all white people are racist. That's mm-hmm. what she said. Yeah, because she said that even though that she participates in the system that was designed for her to have these benefits at the expense of non-white people, that I'm paraphrasing. So she did make it understood that she may not be one of those people who overtly walks around saying, I hate black people, but she's still racist by her participation in the system that gives her these advantages. And it's not like she's actively working to remove those advantages and even the playing field for anybody else. So that in and of itself is just an act of practicing racism, just saying, okay, well, I'm just going, you know, just take this, this, uh, <laughs> this gift as far as I could take it. I just happen to be born in the right, right, uh, complexion for the selection for the protection is, uh, Paul Mooney used to say. Yeah. Uh, what was we at? Uh, it was another one that, uh, he was the, he looked like he may have had Down syndrome, the guy I'm talking about, when he said that he yeah. recognizes racism being uh, growing up away from no black people is because his daddy was very vocal based on the skin color. But he mm-hmm. wouldn't call him racist, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad you, you caught that, too, because he literally, and a lot of times we learn that on the cows that, in those situations when you're dealing with racists, they will always protect other racists depending on the context of the situation because in other situations, they'll out them too. If they think it's advantageous for them to expose that other person as a racist, they'll come out and say it. And even Neely Fuller said, um, the only time you can actually overtly call a white person a racist is if they themselves admit to being racist or if another powerful white person says that person is racist. Then by having that powerful white person you know, it, it, it bolsters the believability of if a black person was to call this white person a racist and you have this other real powerful um, white supremacist saying, hey, this guy, I know he's racist, and they might give you examples of things they've said or done that people might not be publicly aware of. So um, I think for, to me, in that situation, you're seeing even with a blind white male that he is actually protecting his racist father in that situation and couldn't even be honest about the fact that his father was practicing racism, which to, which to me is an act of racism in and of itself yeah. too. Um, because you're, you're causing confusion. And that I think is what has black people in the worst state that we're in as far as our behavior and the ways that we are detrimental to ourselves is the fact that a lot of us are just confused about a lot of things and don't even understand what we're confused about. Like we couldn't even articulate it. I think a lot of us, they, they might say I'm confused, but I don't even think they can even put it into um, a, a coherent narrative where you can understand what it is that's confusing them. And that's that to me is how successful the system is. So him as a, a white blind person saying what he said, I think would be confusing to the mind of a victim who doesn't fully or doesn't at all understand the system of white supremacy or doesn't understand the system at all. I could be incorrect, but you know you can you can definitely <laughs> let me know if I'm <laughs> incorrect. No, I a lot of confusion, like you said, because uh, he was saying all of this while he was giving a specific example of his father practicing racism. Right. Absolutely, and thinking about it, because he was blind, 
why wouldn't it for him be common sense for him, for him to understand that his father was literally indoctrinating him into how the system works just by making sure that in every encounter, especially when his son was around, he would explicitly state what the race of the person is. And I'm pretty sure he didn't do it in a positive way. So children learn by example. They learn by what they see and what they hear. So obviously the way he would talk about black people would give him that impression that these people are less than less human than I, based on my father's <laughs> the way my father talks about these people versus how he talks about other white people. I may not be able to see, but I'm discerning that there's two different groups of people and one group is supposed to be treated this way and the other one is supposed to be treated the complete opposite of that group. It was also interesting, uh, the brother, who mm-hmm. I'm... Yeah. He didn't ever say, but the, uh, the gentleman apparently was blind as well and they would... They finally found out each other was black, so the just mm-hmm. the perception that they had of each other, that was interesting mm-hmm. to hear that also. Oh yeah, um, that blind clip kind of made me think of that um, <laughs> black white supremacist clip by Dave Chappelle. It really made me think think about that briefly, and I kind of laughed to myself. The difference is there was no black person in any of these clips that represented the Clayton Bixby. Um, character, but I'm pretty sure somewhere out there there's a Clayton Bixby-esque type of blind black person somewhere. I just think there's this, there's always room for that. I think this is America, and I've seen some of our people align themselves with the craziest of ideas and theories, including white supremacist ones, so I'm pretty sure there's probably some blind black person who's mad at all black people and might think that way. You know, I could be wrong, but yeah. I just think in America anything is possible. <laughs> that, that's just my feelings. I could be wrong. Yes, a few that's, that's not even blind. So, you know, <laughs> you're right. It does happen. <laughs> but just to uh, keep it moving, I thought the, uh, the way Dr. Joy started out with the current situation of today, uh, yeah. Michael Vick, you know, they had to sign the petition for him mm-hmm. not to be a Pro Bowl captain or what have you, for those of you who watch football. But yeah, this all stems because of the uh, the dog fighting he was that he had to go serve prison time for. And if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken, uh, wasn't his cousins that was uh, fighting the dogs and he didn't he get charged because he owned the property? I mean, that's, yes. If I if I remember correctly, he wasn't actively fighting the dogs in this particular instance. He was known and was caught fighting dogs in his past. But in this instance, if I remember correctly, you're right. He owned the property, but it was um, some people he knew and a couple of his relatives that were the ones actively, you know, dealing with the property on a daily basis and raising the dogs and doing right. all the things that he ended up being accused of doing. Yeah. So, I think yeah, it was kind of like a bi- so, you know, guilt by association really had... thing. My, my bad. No, they just going to be real short, but uh, they never had anything as far as videotape of him fighting the dogs and nothing like that. But it's been mm-hmm. like um, a couple hundred thousand, you know, suspected racists trying to prevent him from getting any money from the, from the NFL, I, I assume. I mean, I don't know why they're doing this, but they're saying it's because of the dog fighting. All it is is just, just really is, is basically a way of saying without saying that an animal's life is more important to a lot of these white folks involved in this 
than the life of exactly black people. Because you don't see any protests when black people get shot in the back running from the police. You don't see any protests when police officers just do some heinous thing to some black male or black female. And there's no protest. There's no white people coming out saying, you know, we need to do something about this. It just doesn't happen. But let, like, like Dr. Joy Degree said, let, if I kill a puppy <laughs> right here on stage in front of all of you, you're going to need therapy. And if they white, they're going to need triple the therapy because they really only value white life and they value animal life. They did a study. We talked about this, I think, about two years ago where they were able to see with psychological testing that white people do not have empathy for black people. Mm. What they did was they showed them videos of white people doing innocuous things, going to the store, playing with their children in the park, walking a dog, just doing regular everyday people stuff. And they found that the, the that brain centers were triggered that would revolve that revolve around relating to what you see. So in other words, those brain centers that I think they use like a dye, they were able to see what parts of the brain were lighting up as they were watching these white people doing these regular activities. And it was that the part the parts of the brain that lit up were the parts that were related to relating to what you see. So I see this and I relate to this. And then they would do the same thing with just black people and none of the senses would light up. And when they would test the black people and other non-white people, they found that those groups would be able to, those same senses would light up for just about everybody. So they were able to see a white person doing these things and the same senses would light up. They would see black people doing the same thing and those senses would light up which means that regardless of who was doing the activity, they were able to say, I could identify with that activity. I can identify with that person in some form or fashion. So this is not saying all white people, but it's saying that when they tested this large group of people, they were able to find a distinct pattern of behavior where white people only mentally responded to white people doing those activities. And everybody else, the specifically black people, because it was about black people, they had no activity whatsoever. So that's also a, a sign of what Dr. Joy Degree was describing in that video. The little girl with the grimace on her face, which I just say was a smile. Yeah. Dead man hanging right there, dead black man hanging right there, and a bunch of grown white adults trying to sandwich themselves into the picture to make sure that their face was there so they could send it in a postcard form to some, one, some relatives or friends across the country. And then, like she said, there was a younger white female on the other side, just completely anesthetized to the fact that there's probably a stinking dead black body there. Because he wasn't human. Let that man have been Fido, the German shepherd, and those white people would have been insane, trying to cut the dog down and mm-hmm. see, see what they could do to save it. What they would have done to the person that, that put the dog up there. Oh, forget it. <laughs> if he's black, <laughs> it's over. Killing a dog for them is like killing a white woman or something. They'll, they'll, they would have lost it. That's just how that's, that's, that's just, and that's what she was talking about is the effect on white people is the, their loss of humanity. They have no connection. There's a reptilianness, a cold attached reptilianness to that sort of behavior. And, um, they're the only group of people that you've seen as a holistic group function in that fashion. I think every race has their capacity for atrocious violence 
but I think that, that white people really ushered in that that era in a serious way in human history that we had never seen. And in response to that, a lot of non-white groups became in certain ways just as heinous as them. Um, but what I've always said is what I've always seen historically. Black people have only been a, the biggest danger to other black people. So when you see the atrocities, it's black people killing other black people, whether it's the Hutu and the Tutsi or um, what, what they call in black on black crime here or whatever you want to call it. You don't see any measured violence against the people who created the conditions of any of those black people. It's always one black group blaming another black group for something, and then they go ham on each other. And even when you go back to the Hutu and the Tutsi thing, that was initiated by white people. They, they put them against each other and actively stoked the flames of what became that genocide. And then black people just, you know, <laughs> nobody does, does any, anything we do, we do it better than other people, including destroy ourselves. Like we're good at everything, the good and the bad. And that inc especially includes self-destruction. So I think that is what really um, should give us a lot of pause for thought as far as how we live and choose to express ourselves, um, especially towards each other. Um, I think there's just a lot of work to be done in that particular arena of our existence is our ability to, um, if we don't, this, if we don't agree with each other, just being able to, um, just go our separate ways and let people live their life. And, you know, you may not like what they have, may have said or the, or what side of whatever issue it is that they may stand on, but that's their life. <laughs> and if, if it's not, impacting your personal life it's not impacting your ability to relate to your children and your family why would you even think of going taking anything to a violent level with anyone else and a lot of the violence we see with each other is the lack of ability to respect each other we'll say the craziest offhand things to each other um there's nothing that's held sacred even death anymore people are dying and people making fun of that making fun of people relatives and we might think in a rational sense that, okay, it's, it's, it's stupid that this person shot somebody because they talked about their dead relative, but everyone grieves differently. And very close to grief is anger. That's one of the emotions you have to go through in the grieving process. So if you lost someone that you cared about and someone is literally disrespecting them, and, and especially in, in, a, in a, a medium like social media or it's filmed and it's put on the Internet, that can stoke the flames of someone's grief, especially if they're in that anger stage and then you're doing something to further stoke those flames where well, that person might snap and kill you. I'm not saying it's correct. I'm just saying you have to understand where someone is psychologically when you choose to disrespect them like that. You just don't know what anyone's capable of. And we don't care about that anymore. We'll just <laughs> reckless abandon, just talk crazy and not realizing that everybody's not going to be able to, to tolerate that without having a physical response. And just because you can push a key and, and turn, turn the, the computer off or get off the phone and call it a day, doesn't mean somebody might not be able to trace where you are through your IP address or whatever else. And there's many ways of people doing crazy things like that. And some people are crazy enough to do that. So you have to really think, and I think black people in general in today's society, we see too many examples of that. Like we just don't, um, we're invisible to each other. We talk about the Invisible Man by Ralph Ellis, Ellison. Um, I think we're also invisible to each other. 
Because when we see each other, I think we see Satan. And when, for a lot of us that that are Christian, when we see white folks, we see Jesus in a in a in a. It's such a subtle form of indoctrination that the person isn't consciously aware of what it is unless you really, really study racism and how it works and, and the different areas of people activity, specifically religion and how that was used. Because you have to remember religion in and of itself isn't inherently bad. Religion has been weaponized. And what we, a lot of us practice are weaponized forms of these Western religions which all have their roots in Africa to begin with, but again, they're weaponized. Well, we gotta, we gonna have to deal with the current though, because mm-hmm. what we talking about when we see the devil and, and some of our own people, when we look at them, some yeah. of us are doing devilish things. Right? We, we most mm-hmm. definitely, which kind of goes to, uh, you, you wanted to speak on the, I can't remember what the little dude's name was, but he just killed this. Son. Oh, uh, Juice World. That's what they, yeah. they, he allegedly, uh, as of now, they're basically saying that he uh, committed suicide. Is that is that what they uh trying to push? Well, they're not saying he committed suicide. They're saying that, it, that they're considering it an accidental death because essentially he was trying to hide a massive amount of purpose that, that he took on the plane with him. So in other words, before he got caught with the pills, to try not to get caught with the pills, he just popped his bun- a bunch of them to get rid of them so, because he was getting searched. Essentially what happened was the pilot on the airplane called the airport ahead of him arriving and told them that he had guns on the plane and he had drugs on the plane and that um, he feared for his safety. So as soon as he landed, you had um, the FBI waiting for him and the FAA was waiting for him to search his plane to see if what the pilot said was true. So they did find, I believe it was two nine millimeters and a 40 caliber handgun. They arrested his two security guards. They were released within 24 hours because the guns were registered to them and they were, of course, licensed to carry them. But they also found 70 bags of marijuana and a bunch of Percocets. And they said while they were searching his luggage, he collapsed and fell into the seizure. And right before he got to the area where they, where they stopped him to search the plane, that's when he, um, the witnesses said they, they saw him popping all of these pills. So they said they attempted to give him Narcan to reverse the effects of the drugs. They said he, he, um, he started to come out of the seizure briefly, but he was incoherent. And then um, pretty much he went, you know, he just pretty much expired shortly thereafter. So he just had a ridiculous amount of Percocets in his system, and he was trying to hide it from the police. But to me, that but he's young. That's again, he's young. He didn't. He wasn't. He was. He, he didn't. I don't think he knew what the heck he was doing. I think he was young, doing stupid thing, a big stupid thing. Not every young person would do something that stupid. But I, I, and then again, he's on drugs. Drug, drug people on drugs do the craziest, most ignorant thing. So for him to think that he would get 70 pounds of marijuana transported from where he left to where he was going is, to me, insane. But you were more worried about pills than you were about the 70 pounds of marijuana that you had on you. All right. But now, go now, ahead. Here, here's my idea for it. Because these young folks are a lot more informed about some of this stuff than we are. Because they mm-hmm. use them, they know them firsthand. 
and he's uh, apparently a very talented uh, young man. I mean, for yeah. the for the genre of music that we have today, that they consider him a talented young person. With all of the stuff that he talks about, like you stated earlier, he he predicted uh, this was uh, as far as the seizure thing was going to happen, but he has a great understanding and I do not for one believe that he just took all of those pills trying to hide those. I I just can't believe it because he knows how jacked up he gets off of the few that he does take. So why take all of those? You see what I'm saying? Not to say I, that's just a random thought comes to my head. Uh, it goes yeah, back to what I, I was saying. I, I, about I could just see him being naive, though, and thinking he could, you know, maybe swallow them and then vomit them up later or something. But I think the people who were with him, who saw him take them, that should have been the first thing that they told law enforcement. Like, this dude just took a bunch of pills. I think you need to help him because he's going to have problems. They, But they didn't say anything pretty much when he started the seizures. I think somebody said that he was ODing, and that's how they administered the Narcan, but... Like they said, he, he came out of the seizure briefly. He was um, he was awake but not coherent, and then he he, he slipped away from there. So yeah, it's it, it's that. And and they said that his last um, few tweets, he was writing to some girl that he I think he was in love with, saying that he was no longer going to mess with the codeine anymore. He's done with that. He wants to, you know, dedicate himself to this most incredible love he found, and he doesn't want to lose this person. Um, this is what he was uh, texting right before everything hit the fan. So they, that, that's kind of eerie to me, like when they have people's last tweets and it'll be a certain amount of time before, you know, they passed away. Like, you know, I, that's really eerie. But that's pretty much what he was saying when he actually ended up doing that. That's why I think he was actually scared. I think he was just, he went from being a young 20-year-old, 21-year-old adult into like child mode. Like, I don't want to be caught with these. And I mean, all he would have to say was, "Look, I have a drug problem. You know, I'm an addict. <laughs> you know, I mean, real, real talk. But maybe he didn't even think of that. He exactly. was just like, let me try and get rid of them bad boys.' And but I, I like I said, the 70 pounds of weed just that just sets a uh, pretty much a distribution or potential kingpin charge right off the top because you can't say this is personal use. <laughs> Nobody's using 70 pounds of weed in one year. That's crazy. There's only people who are distributing it. So it, it's 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 a lot. I think." But yeah. I, I think he was really scared. That's my opinion. I could be wrong. You know, and I think you're correct. He, he might have known the danger of it, but young people don't always think. They always think there's going to be a tomorrow. And it's funny because Willie D said um, he had made a statement that turned out to be true um, a few months ago in an interview. He said um, he, does, he, he, um, he, he believes he was going to be a part of the 27 Club. And meaning that he wouldn't make it past the age of uh, 21. Um, and sure enough, this is what it is. And he had the um, he had a song, this song called Lucid Dreams. And it's actually talking about loss of a love, love, a love that he had for this female. And um, part of it talks about using drugs to anesthetize the pain of losing this love. And he had turned this into some sort of uh, they call it a TikTok challenge. And he stuttered the track in a certain area where it sounds like he's having a seizure. It kind of sounds like that, just the 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 sound of the way he he um he chopped up 
that particular part of the, the, the song. And all these children started making these videos, putting water in their mouth, and they would start um, shaking like if they were having a seizure at that particular part of the song and start dribbling water out their mouth as if they were drooling. So you have all these young people doing this as like this joke challenge. This was just a month ago, and a month later he dies from a seizure. So he pretty much predicted how he was going to die by doing this challenge that became extremely popular on this TikTok app. And a month later, almost to the day, they said he, he expired having a seizure by popping too many pills. So it's a lot of it's ironic. It's very, very ironic. Um, and again, Willie D says something. He said, you know, the power of words. Watch what you say. We have too many examples of that in life, <laughs> especially when it comes to hip hop. We're artists um, who somehow were obsessed with death in their lyrics and then they end up expiring ways that they rapped about seeing themselves die or seeing things unfold. You know, Slick Rick was one who did that with children's story, almost verbatim everything he rapped in that song. And it took decades for that to happen, but it, it happened to him. It, it was it was crazy. Thankfully, he lived through that, but he almost got deported and all of that. So that's another example. But the, the, thankfully, the rapper lived. But there's a lot of examples of these rappers talking about dying. I even did it when I was younger rapping. Um, kind of one of the reasons I'm glad I didn't <laughs> didn't make it <laughs> who to say I wouldn't be one of those statistics too so I know I know what it is I know exactly what it is so I just um I'll just leave it at that so yeah power of words for real serious business I don't know man I just and I could be I'm I'm more than likely wrong I just say no, man. Too much understanding. It wouldn't make sense. Not even to him. I mean, the only way I could see him wanting to commit suicide is if he thought to himself, I'm not going to get out of this. I got 70 pounds of weed. I got a bunch of these pills. I'm going to end up doing major time. That's the only other thing, but there's nothing that he left. There was no suicide note or anything. The only last thing that we saw was his tweets where he was talking about leaving the drugs alone because he wanted to be with this female. So mm. it could be, like I it could be what I was saying, that he, he just got scared in that moment. Because, I mean, 21 is 21. Is- and they, we make dumb decisions at 21. We may not think it at that time, or we may think of ourselves as adults, but really 21-year-olds are pretty much babies. They just starting to start life for real, for real, um, outside of the immediate jurisdiction of their parents, like for real. So they're still children, and yeah. a lot of times, if you if you are a person who reverts back to childlike behavior when you're scared, when you're 21, you're gonna revert to whatever it is you know, whatever it is that you know that's your base. That's what in the most extreme situation you're gonna revert back to that. That's just natural human nature. It's human nature. If you're a person who's heavily Christian and something happens to you, and your default is to pray to Jesus in that moment. But if something extreme is happening, you can change throughout your life, grow and develop. But when you get under that extreme pressure, you're going to fall back to that because that's what's comfortable. That's what gave you that comfort. And it's something that you it's almost like your Linus blanket. Every human being has those things that that kind of shape their character and it always reverts back to your childhood. So whatever your default is, is usually what it is. If you're a person who's calm under pressure, you're going to be calm under pressure. If you're a person who gets scared and you make dumb decisions, you're going to get scared and make a real dumb decision. You have a high potential for that. No, I, I you, agree. I agree with that part. I'm, 
this the situation just it's eerie, like you said, on on so many different levels. Um, we ain't, For sure. I'm going to just get away from that one, though. Okay, let's roll. <laughs> but uh, on this last one, uh, alienate yourself from yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, I, he made so many points as far as the gut feeling. I thought it was yeah. very, very uh, interesting that he asked, how many of y'all have done something stupid and then had the gut feeling? And nobody had nobody, not one person raised their hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we've all yeah, overlooked it. So that was uh, that was about the most I got out of that man. Is we have to uh, unlearn. I guess that's the best way to describe it. Unlearn so many different things. Uh, I was having this conversation uh, with this black dude and this white dude about two or three weeks ago and the topic of trade come up uh we was all going in for a particular job both of the black dudes had uh had trades but the white dude knew somebody so of course the white dude got the job right but right now, we all have to, uh, mm, hold on. Oh. No, I want to word this. We all have to uh, find whatever that is that we want to get, right? As far as me and you right now, our time that we would give up for nothing will be passing this information on, whether it's because we had some type of issue that we would have liked to knew that information, which is part of my uh, stance, or if it's to get paid. Either way, we will still be doing this, correct? Absolutely. Well, we had to alienate ourselves because we, as black people, at the very minimum, we can know a bunch of different things to make to make money, right? But we only for the, for most of us, we only get to accept one or two parts of that. So we never have time to create like he was talking about. And we always worry about how to make the next thing happen whether it's the bills, uh vacation, or what have you? It's always something that we need to uh, that we need to take care of. Mm-hmm. So with that, we miss out on all of the life. We get to enjoy. Yeah, I think the most. Okay. We get to enjoy bits and pieces of it, but we spend so much time worrying about not having to suffer. Most of it's gone. That's what I got from that video, and I think it's even more intense for us just being uh, pointed out. You know what I'm saying? The pressure of white supremacy. Well, what he pointed out was just how much of your life, if you hate the job you do, pretty much the only time that is yours is the weekend. And if you tally up just the weekends that you have, your life is extremely short because the majority of your life is spent doing something you hate 
every day because you're either forced to do it, you feel that you have to do it, and there's nothing else for you to do. So you wake up every day, you know, for 30, 40, 50 years doing a job that you absolutely freaking hate and you're not really living. If you're doing something you love, then you're actually living in those moments because you enjoy what you're doing. But if you wake up every day and you hate what you do, then you're already deceased. Five days of the week, you're deceased. And then you live for the weekend. And like you said, before you blink twice, it's Monday again, and you're praying for them five days to pass as quickly as possible so you can have what you think is your time on those two days on the weekend. There was a study done. I read about this. It has to be well over 10 years ago that when they did a survey of uh, working age people who died of heart attacks and massive heart attacks, most of them died of heart attacks at 9 o'clock Monday morning. And they found that it was because they hated their job. So it was almost like a final FU to the job that they hated, that they would die at 9 o'clock, which is their start time, on a Monday morning. So just the act of, I mean, you've even seen stories where you had, I remember there was a guy in Philadelphia. He was a 100-year-old bus driver. And he had been driving the bus forever. And he was well-known. Everybody loved him on his job. He was like, I think he was 90-something at the time, not 100. He was, he was in his 90s. And he, he, was about it, to, he was about to retire. And That's he said that him. he was going to find something else to do because he said when you stop working, it's almost like inviting death because you're not, you're, you're not occupied with something you love to do. So he was planning to transition to doing something else. I forget what it was, but he, is, he pretty much was retiring from driving the bus. And it's true. You'll find people who work for long periods of time on a job and they get real old. They might be in their 80s working on the job. And as soon as they retire, but they don't have anything else to do, they pass away. It's almost like their purpose is gone. So it's like, okay, I'll give up the ghost now. I'm really tired. My soul is tired and my body's tired. Well, but they, if you're working and you at least have to something constructive to do that you love, then it's almost like you have something to live for. So you push yourself, unless you're sick, of course. Go ahead. What you're saying? Well, well, them type of people end up learning to love their job, whether it's running away from home. They don't want to go home. Mm-hmm. They're always doing uh, overtime. I, I know people <laughs> like that. Well, I've met people like that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But that's that's what they end up loving. It just so happens what they love paid their bills mm-hmm. if even That's if true. they if they got fired you them same type of people they wind up you know we hear about them still just by way mm-hmm. of the paper because they running into the law at that time true. very true and I, I just think that it was it was really crazy to see him tally up those weekends and then you know you take sleep into account and everybody who lives that average 80 something of your life you know there's a certain number of years you actually spend sleeping when you tally it all up there's a certain number of years you spend using the toilet there's a certain number of years you spend walking from place to place whether it's walking from one room to the other or walking from one physical location to another um so they you know it's weird but they'll be able they've been able to tally up those sorts of things and those sorts of averages and i think that that was just really incredible because it makes you it'll it should make you think about what it is you do you should be thinking of something else <laughs> that uh, you can do that is enjoyable to you, that is something that you're not going to wake up every day hating having to go to work or the people that you have to go to work amongst 
which I think is a daily reality for a great many black people. Man. I don't think there's a, a lot of black people who do what they love to do every day. And if they do, a lot of times it's not the job. It's, it's something outside the job. So they do the job and then they have something else that they love to do and they dedicate their free time to those other things that they love to do. Um, but I don't think a lot of us find that satisfaction on the job itself. I think there's some of us that do, but I think the majority of us definitely do not. And just because we have to face so much um, racial terrorism on, on these jobs with these folks, um, you'll find, just listen to the cows, um, um, workplace racism, and you'll, just, you'll be able to hear story after story of these intricate scenarios of the ways different black folks are terrorized. People calling from the U.K., they call in from all over the place just mm -hmm. to tell their stories. And um, they sound similar to a lot of other black people's stories as well. So it's just something that uh, I think that we just have to do our best to try and find Well, my, something that I'm works for us. I'm glad you had uh, pointed all of that out because my the only th that's the only thing I kept thinking about while looking at that particular video mm -hmm. was how much time do we lose from the stress that we have to deal with from all of the extra because that was just a normal we, I guess we would say uh, non-black person that he was describing, just a person in general with no type of uh, social economic issues. Right. I'm think I'm thinking in his mind he's describing the average white person. Well, yeah, yeah, but you know, if people don't like that, you know, just a just somebody with no obstructions whatsoever, right? Mm -hmm. Then you add on the pressure, which could cause mental, physical strain. Uh, the physical, <laughs> the physical so, of when we get pulled over, or even just walking past, getting followed. How much time does that take off of our lives? Because we know that stress uh, actually makes you lose years, so that average could be going down as well. Not only that, but we also know that stress actually retards the, the human brain. It stops you from being able to think in logical, coherent manners because when your brain's under stress, it's usually in the form of a, a, a space of inflammation, and there's usually blood flow restriction to different parts of the brain that might be crucial when you're under stress. So you're not even thinking straight. Your capacity to think sensibly is diminished when you're under high stress. That's why it was easy for our ancestors to become enslaved automatons. When they, when they traumatize you enough, you just do what you're told. You don't ask no questions. You just, in such a state of trauma, you just know that you don't want any more suffering. So whatever they say, you do it. You don't question it. It's almost like you're just in a blind stupor and you're just doing what you're told and that's it. And you see that even amongst abuse, uh, victims of um, physical abuse. After a while, they just want the abuse to stop. So whatever it takes to make that abuse stop is what they will do, and it's instinctive. Just like the, the story you played last week with the monkeys just beating the living senses out of any monkey who climbed that, that ladder to get yeah. them bananas because they didn't want to get sprayed with that cold water. So it just became a self-fulfilling thing where it was a culture. It was a culture. Even though they weren't getting sprayed anymore, they would react as if they were getting sprayed. Yeah. Like that Pavlovian automatic response to make sure and it I, don't happen exactly and i and i think a lot of us are living like that because we're under ctsd current traumatic stress disorder we are current we are constantly under stress oh man you need to put that on a t-shirt we really should 
but we're under that like every minute of every day, even times that we're not consciously aware of, we're under pressure all the time. And as a result, we respond Pavlovian. That's some of us, that's what our tempers are. It's a Pavlovian response. We under pressure and that default mechanism is anger. So we revert to that. I know that that's one of my, one of my shortcomings. Thankfully I've worked through that quite well, but I'm still always working on it. I never, put it out put it out of my head as if i've completely lost that because i've always had a short temper it's just i'm way more so i have way more self-control and i understand myself to a point where i don't allow anything to anger me to that point like i used to allow it when i was younger so um but there's a lot of us who are just reactionary like that and we don't know what it is but that's what it is it's a pavlovian condition response to the conditions that you're in every single day of your life. And like they, like our ancestors used to say it, they, they knew it before everybody else. Those first seven years of your life are most crucial. The most important of those first seven are the first three. That is where you learn the most. That's when the brain grows the fastest. It's from one to three. Your brain grows exponentially during that time and you're absorbing everything. You have an innate connection to the wholeness of what it is to be you at that point because you haven't been separated from your authentic self, which is what usually happens after the age of seven. You start to conform to the norms of what your parents are raising you to understand family life and structure looks like. So that's when you start to develop um, the understanding of the world, the way that the people that are important to you want you to function depending on how that's presented to you, it, you can either respond adversarially or you can respond um, cohesively to that. Matter of fact, there's a great clip that um, we, I think we're going to use that next week about how not to um, damage your children that I think is going to help people really understand the importance of the, those early years in a way that might help them if you have young children um, really grasp how important one's parenting skills are at the youngest points in the child's life in order to set a trajectory for them in a way in which you can either have an adversarial relationship with that child as it grows up. The mistakes you make by the time a child is three years old will set up whether or not you're going to have an adversarial relationship with that child throughout their teen years and young adult years, or if you're going to have a, a positive harmonious one. And he breaks it down quite well. And I want people to hear that. I think these are things that we as black people don't get to learn. We don't get to hear about. Um, I just think how I was one of those people who, even though I didn't have all the answers, I lucked up to do a lot of innovative things that weren't done with me. And my wife was, was a big part of that. I had to learn a lot from her. And in so doing, we are able to have a very high quality young black male who loves himself and his people and is doing, learning what he's learning in school in order to give back and especially give back to our people. So, these are things that, um, you know, I think that these are parts of the things we have to learn so that we can just be better parents. The better parent your child has, the better human being you can raise because you understand what needs to be done and you enact those things and the child understands that it's for their best interest and they, are, um, they coalesce with you around that. So um, I think it'll be good. So that'll, that one we'll deal with next week. What were you going to say, Jenna? Oh, man, I... When you start talking to uh, 
talking about that video, I kind of got stuck on that video you want to play next week because oh. uh, parenting <laughs> yeah. is a, a learning while on the job, and I have several yeah. children, so I could see the. <laughs> I could see the different development in all of my children as far as where I was as a parent. So I was just, I got stuck right there. I can't wait to uh, check that video out. Yeah, I sent it to you earlier. So I'll, I'll just um, reiterate it to you so you can hear it. Because I think it's really profound. The way that they break it down, I think every person can go back to their childhood and it's going to make, it's going to strike memories in your own life. And if you have a harmonious relationship with your parents, I think it'll help you understand a lot of, and your parents might've just did this, not knowing that they were doing the right thing, but they happened to do the right thing. Or you have, you might have had a situation with your parents that was adversarial and you'll be able to see, okay, these experiences that I had with my parents kind of set me up to pretty much um, be a rebel. I was one of those people. I stayed in trouble because I stayed asking questions. I didn't do what I was told just because I was told. I was like, why for everything? You can't just say because, you know, I'm your mom. And I said, nah, I need a, I need a more intricate understanding as to why you're telling me this is a necessity. And I stayed in trouble. I stayed getting kicked out the house. I stayed getting beaten senseless. And my sister was just, she was the yes person. She did whatever she was told. And, you know, she barely got touched at all i stayed again i think i got it for both of us so um i think that that's something that uh that was kind of bred in me too because i was i was a person who was really conscious about right and wrong when i felt that i was being done wrong and i just was opinionated and i wasn't afraid to say what i wanted even about the situation i'll say it respectfully but i'm going to say it and, you know, split lips, telephone upside the head, <laughs> table leg across the back. <laughs> I had it all. Extension cords, you name it. You know what I mean? So it's real. And I think that when you better understand the needs of a child, then it helps you become a better parent. Yeah. Because you, you understand what they need and you, you, you provide it in a way that's personalized to them. Because every child is different it. and their needs are different. So you have to do your best to know the child. And I think that's where the, the, the mother really comes in because they know the child from being in the womb for nine months. A lot of people don't realize your baby's listening to you from the moment those cells start to, to multiply. Once they get to that zygote stage, they start in the sense things. They're picking up stuff just like they've already proven. Um, they have, they call it um, bonding with animals. They call it imprinting. And I remember there was a white guy on PBS and he was raising wild turkeys and in the egg, he would cool with the birds. He would talk to the birds real gentle and just pretty, pretty much he was preparing them for when they were born. And he would do this from the time he had the eggs in his possession. I forget how many months it would take for the eggs to, to finally hatch. And he would literally like make turkey sounds. He would cool with the eggs like an adult turkey would. And he would also talk to them real gently and whisper to the eggs. And in the, the few weeks before the babies were born, when he would cool with them, they would cool with him through the shell. And they had all of this on film. And once they were born and they saw him and they were able to put his voice with the voice they had been hearing in the shell for all of those months, they would immediately bond with him. And everywhere he went, he would have these little seven turkey, baby turkeys following him everywhere. And he raised them from egg to adult. And they, that was the whole premise of, of that particular wildlife program was to show how these animals are able to bond pretty much 
even with other other living things as its parent. And it was showing how that process took place. And this guy raised many, many different animals and many, many turkeys over his years. And it was just following this whole thing. So the idea is that um, your baby is listening to you, to the mom, long before it's born. When, when the mom's playing jazz in the house and she's cleaning and singing the songs or whatever, they're hearing all of that. And they're responding to all of that. So that bond with the mom, and if you have a harmonious relationship with the mother and the father, it's through that mother that you're really going to set stage for the foundation of that child. And then the relationship with the father, they, they've already scientifically found that the, the, one of the most important roles of a father is that they help provide self-esteem to their children. Just the act of being there. Not, not, you don't even have to be in interacting with the child. Just physically being present is all you need in those early years of that child's life. It's just the act of being physically present. Just being in the same space with them. Is, and, and it's funny because the way that the guy talks about it in the video that we'll see, I'm just going to reveal this. He said, when you see wild animals play, play is what prepares them for life. So you'll see lions mock hunting, chasing their father's tail, pouncing on it, trying to bite on it like they would bite the neck of an animal. That's all play, but it's actually preparing them for what they're actually going to be doing on the savannah when they're lying, when they're hunting down prey, right? And they were saying all of the play takes place under the protective, watchful eye of the parent. So the baby's free to fully express itself as a baby lion because mom and dad is there and they know that ain't nothing trying to mess with me because my parents are right here to watch over me. And that's the same psychological effect that a parent has on their child just by being physically present. So the child might have a bunch of toys and they, you know, have their own scenario and they, you know, fighting with the toys and they have their own little thing going on, their whole imagination thing. You as a parent aren't involved in that. You're not down on your knees, you know, picking up a toy and you playing a character and their, their little play that they're doing. You're just there doing whatever you do. You might be in the midst of um, writing something or even you might be even watching TV and the child's playing right there near you. Just the act of being physically present is such a secure a security thing for the children, but they found with fathers, their involvement has a lot to do with the child's self-esteem and their ability to um, take risks and try new things. So without the father around, your child might have issues with those things. Mm. They might have self-esteem issues. They might have problems trying to work through things that they feel are challenging. They might give up real easy because the dad not that the mother can't do it, but the dad would be that encouraging masculine presence. And it will also provide that psychological safety net to say, it's okay for me to try something. Even if I get hurt, my dad's right there. These are all things that, you know, we have to learn. <laughs> Nobody told me anything about parenting. I, I learned on the fly. I just knew I didn't want to be like my parents. And I knew I didn't want my child to be scared of me. And I knew I didn't want to um, give him any of the issues that come with being physically hit, which I had a lot of issues because I hit a lot of people from childhood through adulthood. And I got worse as I became a, 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 a teenager. I was a terror. So I didn't want my son having to deal with none of that. So I said, hey, I'm going to take a different approach. My wife actually had I, uh, uh, an idea and a plan 
And I thought the idea and the plan was phenomenal. And it was completely opposite to any anything I had to deal with. And I said, I want to be that type of parent. And I said, okay, I'm going to follow your lead. And I tell my son that all the time. I said, your mom saved our family. And I was intelligent enough to just let her take the lead in showing me how to be the best parent I could be and how to have a constructive presence, not a, not one where my child feared me, but where they honestly respected me. She helped me to, to, to understand the difference and to cultivate that. So I always give her props because that's, that's what she deserves. I would, I told my son, I said, I probably would have beat you behind for everything. Cause that was my answer to everything. That's, that was the answer for, for me. So I just say, Hey, you know, this is the way I, it was done with me. This is the way you do it. It was your mom made me ask me questions, made me think about that. Is that what I really want to do? And I was like, no. So <laughs> I said, okay, I'm going to learn from you. And that's, that's how that went. And, um, my son is a phenomenal human being. So um, I'm thankful for that because I know it would have been traumatizing and quite damaging had I gone with the ideas of what I thought parenting was supposed to be that what we call that old school Caribbean upbringing. <laughs> and nobody wants that. <laughs> if you know what that is, you don't want no parts of that. Yeah. You just don't want no parts of that. A lot of us <laughs> went through it, though. For sure. You're absolutely right. Shoot. It was rooted in terrorism. <laughs> absolutely. It's almost like, um, it's almost like how they say, like, uh, sometimes a, a black police, police officer might, um, treat a black person worse than a white cop because they want to let them know like, Hey, I'm on your side. <laughs> um, it's almost like how the, the um, black mothers of enslaved children would beat their child worse than the, the overseer because they didn't want the overseer to get their hands on the child and potentially kill them. So you would rather be the one to beat, beat them within an inch of their life because you knew exactly where to stop. Whereas that overseer might not. So you have these or brutal, brutal beatings. <laughs> say it again? I say, or not care at all. Absolutely. You are absolutely correct. It's 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 some it's interesting. It's um it gives you a lot of pause for thought. Um I wanted to transition to the clip on addiction and they were talking about uh the the rats that they tested yes. first they they put them in this isolated cage where they only had access to heroin heroin laced water and regular water and when they had absolutely nothing to do they would get high on the heroin water and use it until either they overdose or just use it until they would die from malnutrition which is something that I also saw that they did when they tested crack on rhesus monkeys. That was a study that was done by the CIA on the West Coast, but they did the same thing. But with the, the guy, the scientist he was talking about, he had a different approach. He gave them um, colored balls to play with, tunnels. Um, uh, they were able to have relationships with other rats. They were able to have sex. They were able to do all the things that make rats happy. And they also gave them access to the heroin lace water and the clean water. And they almost never used the heroin lace water. They never got addicted to it because they had a whole fulfilling rat life. And when they had, when they're able to make positive bonds and connections with 
things that they enjoyed doing. They had no need to get high. But when you put them in an isolated situation where all they had access to <laughs> was either clean water or heroin-laced water, they inevitably would automatically go for the heroin until they died. And then they they said that um, they actually, because there was a, another video I saw on the same subject that was a little long, it was a TED Talk, and they had done this massive, massive study on the Vietnam War and found that these uh, uh, 20% of the people who went overseas were using heroin all the time to fight. And when they came back, they said about 90% of them um, just quit cold turkey without having to go to rehab or anything. And that that was the equivalent of taking them out of just that cage with nothing to do and putting them into a quote-unquote human rat park is how they, he described it in the video. So they were able to just access the wholeness of being human, having a wife, your children, you're going to church, if that's what you do, you're doing all the things that you do, there's no need for you to use a drug at all. The drug was actually something that was meant to anesthetize you from the violence that you were experiencing overseas with that stress of life or death. Without that, you were able to revert back to your normal life. So to me, it really kind of shows that for black men, and what they said was this, it's not the chemical triggers that get you addicted. It's the cage that you're in. And they had to change the cage, meaning the way that addiction is looked at. So what they're saying is the cage is life. So when you're looking at a lot of these black addicts, they're under so much pressure all the time that they're seeking to escape those pressures, psychological, emotional, all of that. And that's what the drug is there for, to numb them so that they don't have to feel anything. You get tired of feeling that pain, that discomfort of constantly being under stress, constantly chasing the next bill, constantly worried about if they're going to turn the lights off, constantly worried about if you're going to die when you walk out the door because some crazy cop might kill you or somebody who looks like you might kill you. So it's just constant, 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 constant stress, 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 stress. And like they said, human, human beings are social creatures, so we're about bonding. If we don't have positive family experiences to bond to because our families have been destroyed, we, we, we may not have many friends that we can count on. We're isolated, just like that rat in the cage with nothing to do. We're isolated. We have nobody to get advice from, and we have access to something that can numb us from feeling, feeling that stress that we've been, we've been dealing with in perpetuity our entire lives. So are you, you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to bond with people because there's nobody around to bond with. So you bond with the substance that gives you uh, relief. And when you have positive family relationships, positive connections with your children, positive connections with the people around you, you're able to get good advice. You're able to um, talk out your issues. So that way you're, there's a release for it. You might exercise. You might do other things that holistically help you as an organism just to function in a more optimal way then you usually find more constructive ways of dealing with things that are stressful to you. So it really is saying the importance of creating a system of justice in the collective health of our people. That's what that, that video said to me. By creating an environment where we can actually treat each other with respect and dignity and provide help to those of us who need the most help provide constructive help to those who need the most constructive help among us. And those are the things that our, our traditional 
African societies provided for us that was completely destroyed when we came here under the duress of, of being enslaved people. I, I agree, and that would be beautiful if it worked mm-hmm. that way. But see, I read it differently. How, read did you, it, how did you read it? I read it. I read it under the guise of what I see going on today, right now. Is okay. That, for one, I questioned that number as far as ninety percent, because I know a lot of those uh, suspected races, which was much more of the uh, United States Armed Forces at that time, continued using pills. So that 10% that they talking about, I took that as being the black people because when I grew up, I seen a lot of our veterans come home and were still using. Not not all of them, of course. I'm, I'm dealing with a little small uh, area where I'm from. I was a, a young, young child still after they had done got a little older but still using nonetheless. So I just, and like right now, we're we dealing with the opioid uh, issue, you know, when they throw all our people in, in jail for the crack, which is another one of those uh, controlled programs, you know, uh, take away all of the jobs out of certain areas and, and pump drugs in and just sit back and watch. You know, that's the same type of issue. Yep. It, I was going to say, um, oh, go ahead. It just seems purposeful to me. I don't see, I, we know they uh still taking those pills. Uh, we just finished talking mm-hmm. about that because we as black people have begun to take that, that on as well. I mean, you know, we probably all know somebody or is related to somebody who can't put the pills down as well. We, that stuff is touched by all of our families. But it was all created, though. That's what I got out of that video. Mm-hmm. All of these, it, it, he was speaking metaphorically about all of the experiments that they done put on us. Where, where, Absolutely. who else is being put in these cages and given these options to do something? You know, most most white people not being put in there. I mean, over the years because they. You have the Jews and and what have you, but globally, not on the scale that they're doing us. And I just felt like he was speaking about us. I think I, well, we talked about this a day or two ago, and I agree with you that the the ten percent he's talking about, I believe, were black people because remember that black people, did, black veterans, did not have access to the same services as white veterans a lot of times, depending on. Um, what part of the country they were in and things like that. A lot of times they were not given the same access to services and all kinds of things. So, again, their issues were left unattended and they're walking out of the frying pan into the proverbial fire because you leave in a place where, you know, these Vietnamese are actively trying to kill you every day. So you're using heroin just to de-stress from that. Then you come back and you're dealing with white supremacy. You're not being treated as a human being you got to worry about a cop potentially gunning you down and you got PTSD from the war. And now you have CTSD that you're walking into. So it's just pile upon pile upon pile of more and more stress. So these people, I believe were the ones that continued to use when they got back home and did need rehabilitation because 
We have never been given the proper health services to get over what was done in the past, and we're currently being terrorized every minute of every day to this very minute I'm talking to you. So as a result, we're, we're walking mental health magnets. That's each and every one of us. In some capacity, we're just walking around with some form of mental health issue related to white supremacy or some byproduct of white supremacy in one of the 11 areas of people activity. So I agree with you emphatically on that because the, the, the white veterans, they're coming in, they're coming home to getting jobs. Everybody wants to give them a job. They're getting hookups left and right. So everything that they could, could possibly want, they're walking into. And as a veteran, they're going to get the utmost respect in the public and first dibs on any job that they have. Sometimes. They really don't care much about the veterans either. It's, oh, I know. It's but, the, but it's true that a lot of companies, because I know that especially in the startup industry, if you're a veteran, they give you preferential treatment. I know with Comcast, same thing. They had like company-instated policies with that sort of stuff. So there are, depending on where the veterans are, I'm not saying it's like that all over the country, but I'm saying depending on where the veterans are, there are openings and opportunities that they get access to. And a white veteran is going to have first dibs on anything of that type before a black one. No, you're so, right. I, uh, veterans do get get extra treatment, but, mm-hmm. you know, when it – I'm a veteran. Uh, what it do, brother Scotty? How you doing tonight? He's See, a veteran. Scotty, yeah. You He's know, a vet we too. get a lot of uh, – we get a lot of perks, but the things that we need, super slow, super slow, and yeah. getting those type of things, especially when we're talking about uh, business loans and things of this nature. So, you know, it's normally just some talk to uh, talk down on black people most of the time is when they come up. Uh, but, you yeah. know, we're getting down. I think it's about that time. You want to get a number out so those who have a question or comment, we can go ahead on and get sure. to some of them as well. Sure. You on live with Real Life, the radio show with myself, Ross, and my co-host, Jenna Kepa. If you do wish to ask a question or make a comment, please feel free to give us a call. And you can reach us at 736-284-7300. Huh? Hold I'm up! Wait, 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 wait. That <laughs> I got it all wrong, don't I? Hold yeah, on a second. Let me, let me pull it up right now. I thought I did. Uh, Hold on. Okay, seven one nine. Sorry, seven one nine two eight four five two seven one, and the code is seven zero six three seven. Again, that is seven one nine two eight four five two seven one, and the code is seven zero six three seven. Um, just give us a call and then press star star to uh, put yourself in the queue and you'll be able to ask a question or to um, to make a comment if you if you so choose as well. Were there any clips that we missed? Oh, the 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 the, the white cop kills the the white son of the uh, cop, white child son of the cop who killed the black cop. Well, is that and then we also uh, really nothing much to discuss. Uh, Maybe it could play it again where the young, the random young man just had him an opportunity to uh, speak to the microphone. And the same thing that was going on back then, it's going on currently today. What he said reminded me of what Tupac said in one of his famous clips. He was talking about, um, he said that, he pretty much said we were asking with the Panthers. We were asking with Martin and Malcolm and all of them. We're not asking no more. 
And then he, he had broke something down similar to what this young man said. He said, um, he gave a scenario. He said, I'm standing outside of yeah, he, this hotel he and they're cooking food. Like a Broadway huh? or something. Yeah, he said, I'm watching them, you know, making food and they tossing up salami and it's just all this food flying everywhere. And, and he's at, knocking on the door and he's asking them, you know, um, you know, can I have some food? I'm hungry. And they close the door in his face. So he comes back the next day. He knocks again. Same thing. They open the door. They're letting him see all the food, all the stuff being served in the background, but they refuse to feed him anything. He, and then he said he starts trying to sing his way in. So he's like, you know, we are hungry. Please let us in. We are hungry. Please let us in. So by the third, fourth time, he's like, we are hungry. We need some food. <laughs> they said by the, you know, by the third, fourth, fifth time, you know, I'm picking the lock, coming through the door, blasting. You know, he's just like, you're tired. You, you reach your limits. you set up. you tired of asking. You know, this is for something that, that you should have as a human being and it's not being given to you. So you're finally coming through the door to take it. You're tired of asking questions. And to me, this young man um, said the same thing. He pretty much said the same thing. Like, we, we're more, we have more intelligence. We've been able to read all of these books and we understand the history and we're tired. Like, we're just fed up. And I think, to me, when black people are fed up, that's when we're going to come together. But Everybody gotta, thinks when black people are fed up, we're just going to run in the street and that crazy. I think those of us who actually understand what is necessary to make any real moves in the system, they'll be able to put aside their differences and say, I'm going to come together with these other black folks. Um, they may not, we may not agree totally on the way to get there, but we're on the path to the same place. And maybe if we work together, we can do more than them staying in their, in their little corner and me staying in my little corner and we just independently trying to do this and we keep dealing with the same problems we have for the last 500 years. I think, I think that those of us who truly come to an understanding and we really get fed up, that's the approach we're going to take. Man, I think a lot of us have these weird lofty ideas that, you know, we just all of a sudden it's going to be this wild revolution and it's going to be us against them and it's going to be them killing us and us killing them. And this, (sighs) that is laughable. I mean, even in Sun Tzu, um, the art of war, they talk about the best generals are those who are able to win fights without having to fire a single shot. So who wants, and, and there's so many ways of us doing that. Like we have so many examples from our ancestors on how we would be able to do that. And one of the most successful means of doing that is through the use of boycotting. Like I said, the only people, black people successful and consistent in boycotting is other black businesses. Other black people's businesses. We don't do that with the people who oppress us every day. We use their services every chance we get. Like an addiction. They make it so easy. So you get addicted to it. It's all pervasive. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. So it's hard for the average person to even think, I can do little things to separate myself from this system. So to try not to give as much money to it as I've been giving. Just by being conscientious in how I spend Sometimes just that is too much for some of our people. They just want it fast and easy. Because we're addicted to that little phone, that little computer in the hand. (laughs) So we want it like the white folks get it. We want to order from Amazon Prime and have that bad boy in 24 to 48 hours. You know, so it's a a lot of the same issues the overall society has. We have it, and it's more acute because a lot of the things that we do are anti-ourselves. So the more we indulge in the things that they provide to us, the more against ourselves we are. 
And it's like we don't even see the illogic in our logic. Like we really don't understand how illogical we are sometimes. It's the cultivation, man. Yeah, it, it's it's it, we we've talked about this before. Has um, racism, white supremacy, retarded black people's functioning? And that is that is an absolute, myself included. We all have idiosyncratic things that we do. That's a byproduct of this system not really wanting us or allowing us <laughs> to think for hey. ourselves. How many people you think the Amazon Prime thing, that, that whole scenario you were just talking about, like it was a bunch mm-hmm. of people just, they they like turned on as soon as you said that. Hey, yeah, being there in them 48 hours, man, is useful. Yeah, it really is. And, and you get you get addicted to that fast, that, that quick fix. And that's, that's, that, that's that addict thing. You want instant release. So you use heroin. Like, matter of fact, Dave Chappelle said it. He had a skit where he talks about when racism um, works in your favor, it's golden. <laughs> and he told the story of him being on the plane. With, and this, um, he said this man comes and he pulls out a machine gun and he says, everybody hit the effing floor. <laughs> this is a hijacker. Something like that, right? Everybody starts yeah. laughing. And he said, the, there's, he said, there's no other black people on the plane except for him and this other Nigerian guy across the aisle. So he said the Nigerian guy gives him the thumbs up. And then he gives the Nigerian guy a thumbs up. No words exchanged that they know, they both understand the situation they're in. So he says, he hears a white guy whisper, oh my God, I think those black fellas are going to rescue us. So he says, uh-uh. He said, what we understand is black people are bad bargaining chips. (laughs) They'll never take no black terrorists. You are just not going to see it. So then he described a scenario where the terrorist calls the White House. He's like, "Um, hello? I have four black... Hello? (laughs) They hang up on them. So in other words, black people have no value as hostages. And it's the same thing with the heroin epidemic. The racist aspect that worked in our favor is the fact that Historically, the white medical system has always believed that black people don't feel pain and that we don't feel pain the same as white people, that white people feel pain more intensely than black people. So they would do surgeries on us. Um, J. Marion Sims, the father of gynecology, do um, um, uh, gynecological surgeries on black women with no anesthetic. Whenever he worked on white women, they always had anesthesia. And that turned into the fact that when black people and a lot of black people have died this way, they'll go to the doctor and be like, I'm in severe pain. I really need something strong. They might actually need an opioid and the doctor will give them Tylenol and they'll go home and drop dead. And the white person will have barely a pain and they'll prescribe an opioid like that for them because they believe white people feel pain more. And that many doctors have come forward and said that. So as a result, that's how they got a lot of these people strung out by racism. And like they said, when you get into a medical, and I've seen this because I've dealt with medical billing in the past. When you have a serious medical illness, they give you pure heroin. So like they said, according to those standards, the standards that we hold for addiction, everybody who they give that uh, diamethyl, I'm forgetting the, the full word off the top of my head right now, heroin, that form of heroin, they should be addicted because it's way purer than anything you can get on the street. But they're not. But they do keep purchasing those pills, though. I'm just saying. Oh, without question. You you had you had a whole – there was a place in Florida, no, in, in West Virginia, that was known to be the biggest 
pill dealer in the country. They sold like I think not over nine million pills in like a year. They were just giving them away to these these white people driving from other states to get their get their um their their you know oxycodone and oxycontin and Percocet from this place. And they sold like more than nine million pills in one year or something like that. And they had like this gigantic reputation as being like the biggest um, opioid pill dealer in the in the country, pretty much. And these were pretty much white folks going there. And that's why I I just can't go with it with that part of the video because now mm-hmm. they're not doing street heroin no more or eating poppy right. seeds, but they are taking in these pills. Absolutely. Consuming them. And and those who can't who get tired of taking them, they just crush them up and do the same thing they would do with the powder. Yeah. You know, that that's that's something that they've done. So it's it's um They start young uh, too. Oh oh extremely young. And and for a lot of them it'll be that, that thing. It'll be root canals, it'll be some medical situation that happened to them and they gave them the opiate, opiate, opiate pills, and they got they got hooked, and that was pretty much it. You know, so it's it's a, it's an interesting thing. It's a very very interesting thing because, matter of fact, there's a woman. Her name is Joan Bellows, and she she has a book, Joan Bellow, and she has a book called um, "The Benefits of Marijuana: Psychological and Spiritual." And she was at the time she wrote the book over a 30 year drug counselor. And she has said in that book towards the back, she talks about her work with drug addicts and how she was able to get um, heroin addicts, alcoholics, crackheads, meth users off of those drugs using marijuana. And she had over 30 years experience at that time. She had done been to jail advocating for legalization of marijuana because she had seen the wonders it was able to work in the lives of drug addicts when she was able to uh, replace the hard drugs they were doing to help them wean themselves off of those hard drugs by replacing it with marijuana therapy um, and also counseling. So it, it, it's interesting. It, there's the, the addiction aspect now has been weaponized. And when you look at the weaponization of addiction that comes with um, the, the, the technology that we have, um, we've done shows on this before too, the fact that um, there's about 20-something uh, people in Silicon Valley who pretty much create these apps and these phones and put these things together. And they were all taught by a, um, a psychi- psychologist and he's a renowned addiction psychologist. And he was the one who developed what was known as the algorithm of addiction. And that is what they apply to making apps. That's what they apply to making these phones and things like that. So when you utilize them, they give you the same dopamine rush that you get when you use drugs. So you become addicted to them. So addiction has been weaponized. They've scientifically weaponized it. And we're in a society that puts us in such high stress situations that the majority of society, no matter what race you are, if you're, and most of our families are destroyed over 70% of American marriages end in divorce. So the, the, the stressors is not just on black people. It's just that black people suffer the most acutely from those stressors. But everybody's dealing with them. And it creates a, a society where the majority of people are addicted to technology or they're addicted to some substance or they're addicted to sex, or they're, but they're addicted to something because there is no human rat park. you got to have some type of distraction. 
Absolutely. Because even with the rich people, you find that their families are the worst off. You, you go to, 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 to poverty-stricken places like the favelas of Brazil, and those people are the most poor people, some of the most poor people on earth, and they're not suicidal. Some of them are the most happy people. They're not happy with their conditions, but they're content because their families are intact and they're able to go home and de- decompress with their relatives. And in America, you got people with access to everything. They're, they might be rich and have money and all of this stuff, and they're committing suicide at an astronomical rate. They're killing themselves. They, they, they're doing drugs at an astronomical rate. And these are people that are supposedly rich, so they should have everything a person could want. But they're not whole. There's something going on with them that makes them bond with substances. So nobody's living the ideal existence. And that's the whole reason for for us focusing on justice, because when we focus on justice, a lot of the things that are inherently wrong with the way that we live should be fixed or worked on or improved if we're dealing with justice on a collective level. But the most important group to me when it comes to that is my people, black people. Because we're the most unjustly treated people in the country. But the bottom line is that everybody is suffering. Because the society is just built to self-destruct. It's just that we are the ones that it's been attacking our entire existence (laughs) after our contact with these people. But, you know, everyone's getting it. That's why there's always complaints about the, the white death rate to birth rate and all of these things. They're getting it, too. But this is a monster they created at the same time. The opioid situation is a monster they created. It was really created from white supremacy. You thought you were getting treated better, and you were just made a better addict. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, that true. that's the real talk. You were made a better addict than we could ever be. Because they were constantly trying to keep us from accessing that stuff. So that's why we turned to the street drugs. You had automatic carte blanche access. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm in page. Get the Percocets out. Light her up a prescription. <laughs> that, that, that's what was happening. And then you have black military. I mean, black. You have American military guarding poppy fields in Afghanistan. What do we think that's for? Because they now Frank Lucas. They important the stuff. <laughs> they hustling it. You know, like we're not we're not understanding white people don't understand that their entire issue is from their own government and their own people running that government. They still think that there's an advantage to being white, like Lyndon Johnson said. You get them invested in race and they'll empty their pockets for you. But they're not getting nothing either. Because to us, they're poor, so they just like the black people anyway. But we got to fool them into thinking that they're different. So that thus the, the use of this whole ideology of being white that these poor people coalesce around. And then now the per- person they wanted in office because they thought they wanted a white racist in office, they didn't realize he was also a classist. So he was anti all of those white folks. That Can the majority of them that voted there you for. Go. Absolutely, Brother Scotty Peace. What's good? How you doing? I'm doing okay. I, right. I know what the problem was. I had myself muted, Jenna, on this phone. Oh, okay. <laughs> I can't be heard and, and what have you. We Y'all was you talking now. about heroin, man. Y'all brought back a bad memory, man. I remember as a 12-year-old standing on the cor- corner in Detroit selling heroin to old black people. 
or older black people. I wouldn't say they was like 60 or 70 or something like that, but they definitely was in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And, and that's bad memory, man. This was back in the 70s, man. I remember that as clear as day when y'all said that heroin. And um, then when I was living in Charlotte, um, the dude that lived below me in our apartment, and this probably been about 20 years ago too, um, he sold heroin to, to black people. He was black too. Heroin always been in our community, man. You want to talk about this current opioid crisis, man. It wasn't because they was trying to take care of anybody or, or anything like that. I mean, some of them dudes from the uh, pharmaceuticals have been charged and convicted with crimes, man. Yeah. That was all yep. about grief and flushing yeah. that community and flushing. Now, why is it impacting white people the most? Well, because white people on average have insurance and we don't, you know. And, yes, and so it ain't like they was giving it to them for free. You know right. what I'm saying? There wasn't no free pill giveaway or something. No, they had insurance. And that's Absolutely. how they were able uh, uh, to get them pills. Now, I know what you're talking about in terms of, um, you know, medical apartheid where black people get prescribed. They, we don't get the good stuff. You know, when I had my mm-hmm. back injury, they didn't give me no Percocet or no, no, uh, what's that other one that's real Oxycontin and oxycodone. Yeah. Oxycontin. They didn't give me none of that, man. I had a serious, painful back injury. They gave me hydrocodone. And it mm. didn't really do nothing. The only yeah. thing that helped me was cannabis. Okay? And and I'm glad that they didn't give me um, that, that stuff that got these people strung out like they strung out. I'm glad mm. they didn't, man. Um, me too. Addiction ain't nothing to play with. You know, uh, my one of my uncles used to look, run a crack house. He wasn't selling the crack, but he let the crack dealers come in and sell the crack because they gonna give him some crack, right? And and this is my this is my paternal grandfather's house, but only only my uncle who was a crackhead was living there. And so you know, man, my dad would go by to check. Man, I tell you, man. Anything that had you on your knees uh, uh, looking for crumbs on the floor, that's terrible, man. That's a terrible addiction, man. Uh-huh. And I, I, don't, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on nobody. Yeah, I might wish it on my worst enemies, but I, you know what I'm saying? But yeah. um, that's just something terrible to go through. But what prompted me to call in, it was a couple of things. Where, um, I heard y'all mention Neela Fuller said, if y'all could repeat about you can't call a white person a racist unless what? Yeah, I remember him talking about like black people should never call white people racist directly, which is something I experienced myself because in the sense that understanding that um, when you say that, pretty much the onus is on the victim to prove that the person they're calling racist is racist. And if they don't have what would be considered adequate proof, then their entire premise for calling them racist is going to be laughed at or could actually be turned against them um, in regards to them actually saying that. So that he was saying that um, it, it, the, when, for a black person to call a white person a racist directly, either that person themselves would have to admit it and say, I'm a racist. So they're basically saying that about themselves and you're repeating what they said. Or in some cases, another more powerful white person will be the person to call them racist. 
and the black person might be able to piggyback off of that more powerful white person yeah. saying they're racist if that white person uses examples that they can use to prove the racism of this other person that they're calling out let's say racism is as a as racism does mm-hmm. you know what was that old Forrest Gump saying? Because that's where I bought it. From. That's where I borrowed it from. Stupid, stupid is what stupid does. Yeah, yeah stupid, stupid is what stupid does. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the way I determine whether or not a person practicing racism. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes Mr. Fuller gives too much deference to white folks. I don't need I a powerful white person where he calling them powerful white person to tell me another white person is racist. I can judge for myself whether that person is racist. Okay, and and what is racism but the mistreatment of another human being based on their skin color? Okay, but like I've heard him say, there's all different types of mistreatment, but racism is based on skin color. Me mistreating you not because you did anything to me, not because you in a gang or I'm in a different gang or, or whatever. Not no, simply cause you simply cause of your skin color. It's different than mine. I'm gonna mistreat you based on, on on that skin color. That's what racism is, you know. And I know a lot of people in the black community disagree with me, but anybody can practice racism. I see them Asians over there in um, Myanmar. I think mm-hmm. it's called something else where they yeah, kill that's the African people, African descended people, the Papua New Guineans. They look yeah. like they're from Africa, but but yeah, they you know, are. they've been there for so many so many thousands, thousands of years. Probably, you know, they're indigenous to the area or native, or we might, you know, it's different words for it. But let's just say they've been a long time inhabited. Probably yeah. was there before the Asians came there. But them yeah. Asians is killing them, is is committing genocide against them. You don't hear nothing about it on the news. You'll see it on social media if you follow. Uh, some of them Papua New Guinea accounts, which I do, and I will yeah. read their stuff, but this has been going on going for three, four, five years, I may say, that I've you been aware of this suicide. And they're just, and they're mistreating those people based on their skin color. You can throw hair type or phenotype in there. So I don't buy this notion that only white people can practice racism. Anybody can mistreat somebody based on their skin color. Okay, then other people say, well, you got to have power. Well, I'm not a powerless person. If I want to mistreat a white person, which I have mistreated white people just because they was white. When in my younger days, you know, when I was in high school and I first moved down here and I had never been around a bunch of white people before. And I didn't know if this person is is trying me because I'm black and he white or if he just trying me. Okay, but I used to mistreat him, man. I mistreat this one white boy so bad, man, because of who his daddy was. And he had to tell me, I don't believe like my daddy. His daddy was a clan, a grand dragon in the clan. Got away with killing people in Greensboro when they attacked them black and white uh, uh, workers who were organizing the union. I think that was in Greensboro. It's real. His yeah. name is Griffin, man. He, I went wow. to school. Son, he I, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. We I, He used to work at a gas He's dead now, but he used to work at a gas station. We used to just go to the gas station just to make that, and this is a southern word, crackers pump our gas. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I remember you talking about that, yeah. 
we thought we was being funny, but, but really we were just giving the crackers our money. But we was getting a kick out of making this Grand Wizard Ku Klux Klan pump our gas and, and wash our windshields and what have you. So, you know, I just think sometimes some of us give too much deference to white people, man. Now, what really got me thinking about it was was that this thing with Pete Buttigieg, um, yeah. uh, as I call him, Pete Buttigieg, and Booty, <laughs> Booty Gig is racist. Yes, okay? he is. It's clear he's racist. racist too. I don't need to ask no white people if he racist. I can just ask, ask them victims of, of racism in, in wherever that little town is he from. What's the name of the town? Um, is, he, is he from Minnesota? No, it's in Indiana. Well, it's in Indiana? I, I, um, name of the town. I can't remember either. Anyway, I, I knew it was in the Midwest somewhere, but go ahead, brother. Anyway, a black police chief that they had hired uh, recorded a whole bunch of his subordinate officers practicing racism, being racist, saying racist stuff. He recorded them. So Pete going to fire the black police chief and didn't fire none of the racist cops and what have you. And, and, that, and that police department got a history of police brutality against, you know, non-white people and what have you. So Pete got 0%, depending upon what poll you're looking at, you know, for his presidential campaign. And so what does Pete does? He does something that I heard Mr. Fuller call racial showcase, or I call it using human shields, using black people for human shields, where he going to get some black people from his town that work for him, some of them work for him or hope to work for him, to have his little town hall, and it wasn't nothing but maybe seven or eight of them, had his little town hall to blacks for Pete, you know, some nonsense like that. Oh, we black, <laughs> we support Pete. So anyway, Black Lives Matter showed up, and who the black, black Lives Matter have in their group but white people? And so I call this, I didn't have time to write about it because, you know, we end in the end of the year and I'm working on some stuff um, to bring in a new year right or better. Um, but anyway, I was like, hey, this is a white person for Black Lives Matter who is questioning a black surrogate of a white racist about why he mistreats white people. I mean, black people. I was like, wow, ain't that something? That's a battle of racially showcasing. The Black Lives Matter people showcasing white people put on their side. And then you got racist white Pete over here showcasing black people. And I'm like, I'm not a, I'm not one bit confused. I know what's going on. <laughs> I thought that was so funny, man. The battle that of is the classic. Yeah. And, and I've long said it before Black Lives Matter ever ever came about, is if if Mr. Fuller says that white people can, or, or white supremacists can racially showcase black people, we can do the same thing. And Black Lives Matter is a perfect example. They got a whole bunch Thanks. of white You know, I, I was going to call in earlier, but I was just, you know, waiting to hear all of y'all out. And I was like, man, Ross, you ain't never seen no white people out there protesting when black people get shot. If oh, that's yeah. down with black lives matter. Oh, yeah. I've seen I've seen them doing that. It's, 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 see, what it is, is I think um, 
sometimes because of how we describe things, we can give the impression that we see things in a vacuum like that. Because you're always going to find white people amongst us protesting. That's something you can see in just about any film footage you're going to find of protest because not all white people think and function like white supremacists. So you're going to find them in the mix. It's just, um, that's what I want to know. Where is the mass movement? Where is the mass protest when one of them gets shot? Exactly. Uh, They get shot more than anybody else. You know, when you talking about a black person in police brutality, you talking about 13% of the population, but yet making up 40% of those shots. But still, uh, you when when you just look at the raw numbers, the body count, then it's a whole it's hundreds of white people that them bodies is piling up in the morgue every year. And yeah. I'm like, what is it gonna take for y'all to stand up to the to these police in, instead of you know out here talking foolishly about Black Lives Matter? Y'all the one, I mean, Blue Lives Matter. Y'all the ones just getting shot the most. You but know? that that that's where that racist conditioning works against them again, because they're thinking as long as I'm white, I still got it better than those black folks well, over I, there. I think he's thinking that that white person probably deserved it. They probably saying to themselves, "Well, that was a criminal." Unless it was that's like possible this too. I'm sure white it trash. is. Yeah, they probably oh that white trash deserved mm-hmm. to get shot. He shouldn't have stole. He shouldn't have stole that pound cake. He had it in his hand. <laughs> you ain't, you know, it's true because I've seen how they despise each other. Like when um, it was D.L. Hughley said it, but I said it before, and I said, a couple of people said well, said something similar. The fact that if when you see, uh, he, he said it in a joke, he said, when I see a, a, a homeless white person, it's, it's like a person who wasted, who's wasted their white skin. Wasted white it's skin, like yeah. It's like if you can't make it being white, in a racist white supremacist country, like then you just you gone. And I've seen white people look at other homeless white people that way. They would look at them with the same disgust <laughs> that they would look at a homeless black person with. It's the difference is earlier though. It's right. that class thing. It's, it's the class thing. Absolutely. Because I'm gonna tell you, man, these poor white folks around here, and I know some black person told me, "Oh, white poor white folks don't exist." Hell, I took pictures of these people's house, man. It looked like Fred Sanford. You know, Fred Sanford had all the junk in the yard, the broken down garbage and what have you. I took a picture of it, and I posted it to Twitter. I was like, I could to drive around Gaston County, which is predominantly white, and take pictures of the filth and the abject poverty that they living in Man, let me tell you what happened. My daughter bought a Nintendo game system from this white girl that lived in the trailer down the road, man. And and she was having a yard sale. My daughter bought that little Nintendo. It was an old one, too. I was like, why you buy this garbage? I was like, they they, you probably can't find games for it. She was like, well, she only wanted $2 for it, something like that. So anyway, next thing I know... Roaches is coming out of doggone uh, game. Console. No. I'm like, oh, we got to get this up out of here. This guy yeah. house probably Whoa. crawling with roaches. They probably in everything. I mm-hmm. hope you something else from there. But I was like, maybe I need to do a poverty tour for these white folks to stop engaging in identity voting and see it as a class issue. 
You know, you got Bernie Sanders running now. And, and I'm telling you, man, <laughs> these people need them policies as much as anybody else. They do. And they, it's the majority of them is on welfare, man. You know what I'm saying? And they use identity politics. And, and I'm talking, they use it on all of us. They Absolutely. use identity politics to take sides based on race instead of taking sides based on my condition. You know what I'm saying? What yeah. do I need? What does my family need? What does my community need? And and so I tell you, man, the the, the greatest examples of, of of identity politics not working for anybody, I can give you two great examples. Barack Obama and Donald Trump. They ain't done nothing that they said they was gonna do for nobody. You know what I'm saying? Nothing. Agreed. Yep. You know, Trump said he was going to drain the swamp. They believed him. I'm like, he the swamp with his old, his old yeah, crocodiles. Exactly. <laughs> That's what and he, he brought did. back some of the old ones. He recycled some <laughs> of them old swamp monsters like uh, John Bolton until John yeah. Bolton uh, overstepped his his uh, his power and tried yeah. Trump. Trump kicked him out. And what have you put it? Trump and Obama is the result of identity politics, of us basing our votes based off of skin color. And what has it gotten us? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever except for these never-ending wars and, and constant cuts to the social safety. Now, Trump just did another big cut to, to uh, the welfare. Uh, yeah, the SNAP program. Yep. You know? he, oh, man. He's messing up a few million. Mostly, there's women and children mostly that's on that. But I'm like, okay, but where was y'all when Obama cut? Y'all wasn't saying nothing. Why? Because you were disarmed by his skin color. Maybe that's why some white people won't say, well, there's plenty of white people that talk trash about Donald Trump. Um, but that's usually along, you know, partisan uh, political lines. But the last thing, justice. You know, you mentioned justice. And I was going to put a poll up, but I was like, nah, I'm not going to put a poll up. Uh, I I'll bring it up you know, when it comes up. But anyway, it just came up. So, you know, Mr. Fuller talk about justice. And a lot of people I know that follow Mr. Fuller, they misrepresent what Mr. Fuller say or or they put their own spin on it or whatnot. But mm -hmm. I want y'all to come, I'm going to give you a multiple choice uh, question okay. pertaining to Mr. Fuller's quote. And, okay. and let me just put out there in case people don't know, I don't I don't follow behind people or or accept everything that everybody say, but everybody every because they're not always correct. But guess mm -hmm. what? They're not always incorrect too. You know, mm -hmm. there a lot of times they be correct, and that's the thing, man. You got to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff. You know what exactly. I'm saying? The good yes, from the bad. And, hey, I can't use that, so I'm spitting it out. But I can use this, so I'm going to swallow it whole, you know. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to give you all a multiple-choice question. All right, this okay. is my, here's the question first. The question is pertaining to uh, Mr. Fuller saying what a system of justice looks like. He said, in a system of justice, it's a system where no one is mistreated. Everybody who needs help gets help. Or does he say a system of justice is where black people get help and they the only ones to get help? Or a system of justice is when white people get help and nobody else gets help? I mean, which is it? 
Which is what's the correct answer? The first one. Right. Right. Where everyone, everyone gets help. That needs help, right? It gets the most constructive help is the way he actually put it. Yep. Okay. Yeah, exactly, because me just trying to help you out with your crack habit by giving you more crack ain't helping you. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yes, no, that's sir. not constructive. <laughs> that's not constructive help. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just helping you to get high. That's not too constructive. But, but yeah, man, and I find a lot of people really, uh, and when I say a lot of people, I'm, I'm just saying some people I come across don't seem to grasp that concept. It's some black people who I pay the most attention to because I am black. But I'm like, they seem to think that a system of justice is where we only get help and nobody else gets help. It's that's the reverse what, racial weaponization of the concept. Yeah, that's not that's not what justice looked like. See, that's how they put the system and racism in place to continue slavery. Because, see, when they had, well, this was even before slavery, where it was just involuntary servitude, where where you wasn't even called a white person or a black person. or any, They hadn't even invented that yet. It was right. either you was wealthy or you was not, or you was yep. a peasant. And a yep. lot of peasants came over here as indentured servants, uh, uh, all different yeah. colors, even though they hadn't invented color yet. And so yes. when them people banded together to rise up against the wealthy, the planter class, the plantation owners, that's when they said, you know what? We're going to create this system that that uh, rewards white people. We're going to create white people. We're going to create black people. We're going to create this system where all you got to be is white. And we're not going to enslave you. We're going to give you jobs, and we, those jobs are going to be managing the plantation because now we're creating slavery just for black folks. So instead of, yeah, instead of those people sticking together and saying, no, we're not falling for that. We're coming for your head. We're coming for everything. We're going to take everything because you've been mistreating us all. And mm-hmm. but, but those people back then, they fell for it, man. They fell for it. And I feel like we still falling for it t- today. Thanks for allowing I, me to share. hope I made some sense. Yes, thank you very much, Scotty. Greatly appreciate that insight and that input because I agree with you. It's very accurate. I've seen a lot of black folks who have misconstrued Mr. Fuller's words in regards to that specifically. And what I find is exactly what um, Brother Davies always say, that it's a it's a subconscious way of overtly becoming what we had to endure. And the thing is that whenever there's justice, black people have been at the epicenter of justice. And whenever black people have made headway towards justice, everybody has benefited from it. So the idea of justice is, and and, and I think Martin Luther King put it the best and injustice happening anywhere is an injustice everywhere because if it's allowed to take place, then if it's happening in one space, it's easy for it to spread to other places. So when you take a, a, a more selfish approach to looking at justice, it's not true justice. It's just the reverse of what was done to you. And the difference is you put yourself on top and you put the people who you deem as the other on the opposite side of that spectrum instead of you being the other. And that's not what justice really looks like because there's many people who look like us who are no less tyrannical 
than some psychopathic white person. And we have many examples of that throughout history of people who look like us, male and female, who were tyrannical and, yeah. and completely anti-black themselves. Matter of fact, I just posted um, an article from Face to Face Africa earlier today with this queen, a Malagasy queen. Um, she's from Madagascar. She was around, I believe, in like the 1800s, and she is known as the world's most murderous ruler in history because she was known for wholesale hanging, poisoning. She would just poison mass amounts of people who disagree with her. It was crazy. And I'd never heard of this person. I just saw the article today, and they literally call her the world's most murderous ruler. So we just have to really understand what justice really means, and it's really a balanced approach where nobody's mistreated. And, and that's just fact. You know, again, right now we're suffering the most. So our focus is on gaining justice for us because we're getting it the worst and we need the most constructive help right now. But to say things start, let's say things start to change and things start to improve for us. Every time that we've made headway, it's always had a positive effect on the rest of the society because we were the ones at the bottom. So there was actually a trickle up effect when black people made headway in civil rights and human rights issues. It's, there's never been a trickle-down economic effect, but there's always been a trickle-up effect for black people. We always get, help everybody else get treated better, and they usually get treated better than us because they're not black. <laughs> but nobody comes to our rescue for much of anything, or very few people do. And the ones that do, that don't look like us, the numbers are pretty much insignificant a lot of times. Right, can't even count them. Yes. Um, there was was our was Hayes on the line? Yeah, I'm still here, bro. Oh, were you, were you, did you want to chime in? Yeah, I I, I can uh, focus in on that addiction and uh, and uh, police injustice. I'll focus first on the the addiction where uh, my stepfather used to run packages for the Young Boys Incorporated. Then he used his two nephews and myself to run these packages. Wait, wait, a, minute, wait a minute, Hayes. Small world, because that's who I was out there slinging heroin for. <laughs> wow. Damn. Yeah, wow. you ever heard of, you ever, ever seen a nine-year-old so strung out on cocaine that he could run packages all night long? Yeah, that was me. Wow. And then... And then, you know, we, for each uh, each package that we got, we were getting money at first, but then my stepfather would, it was cheaper. We had so much blow. It was just cheaper to give us, you know, a little baggie here and there. They they made, It made us work faster. So, you know, instead of getting $100 a run, we were getting a, a little a little powder and maybe half of that money. But then... um. You know, uh, I was nine years old. Now, when my my mother killed my, my stepfather, it was over some domestic shit. She didn't know that he had us out there running. It all came tumbling down the night he died and everything where his nephews, you know, his nephews squealed on him because I just, I, I wouldn't, t- the money was too good. And plus, you know, I'm 19 years old and the, the packages that I was bringing home, my own personal, you know, I had a habit, 
But see, by the time he died, I think I had maybe stashed up at my grandparents' house maybe four four ounces of some good, really good cocaine. They don't make it like that no more because this stuff wasn't even stepped on. I I could I could mow six lawns in one day, and I wouldn't get I wouldn't get tired. But my problem came when my nose started bleeding uncontrollably. And I was diagnosed with having high blood pressure. Now let's let's mark it up a couple of couple more years. Now I kicked that habit. He she she killed him when I was eleven years old. I killed I, I had to kill that habit. Now they put me in, you know, uh counseling or everything like that here up at the University of Michigan. Because before my mother went back to teaching high school at McKinsey High, she worked for 3M as an engineer. But those white heads up there didn't like a black woman making close to $200,000 a year. And instead of driving her crazy, she went back and got her master's. And then she went back teaching at McKinsey High School, where I also went to school. But uh, she met my stepfather back in the early 80s. Yeah, he had he had big pull for the Young Boys Incorporated, but when I got when I got off of that, then you know I looked down on everybody that smoked marijuana all through high school, all through high school, until um I went to the the dentist's office one day to get uh my wisdom teeth. Here, babe, take take my car and uh, hold on for a second, y'all. Take my car and give me a cigarette. And uh, get the blunts and everything. All right, and um, I went to this place called Gentle Dental, and, and these places weren't so gentle. But anyway, the dentist was uh, a student of my grandfather that worked at Washington Community College. Now y'all talking about Percocet? See, before there was a Percocet, there was this thing called Percocet. Dan. Yeah, oh man, oh boy, I know why they stopped that. Kind of like I see why China went to war over the opium war. This, this is a bad pill. All right. So now, yeah, I had all my wisdom teeth taken out at the same time. That was mistake number one. Mistake number two was letting them know who my grandfather was. I had an endless supply of Percodans, and then his Percodans ran out, and then we went to Percocets. And I was, I was 19, 20, 21. I haven't had a pill since I've been 25 years old or anything like that for a long time. So addiction ad- addiction has taken me for a loop. I've had to eat out of trash cans when my mother and I fell out. And like Rob says, it's, it's, I think it's been the marijuana that, that has pulled me out of that dive. I know it's pulled a lot of these, these meth heads up here in, in the suburbs. But another thing I want to talk about like that, that Heron... You know, the white people that do have insurance, yeah, when that insurance runs out and they can't get those pills, you know they run right down there to offer Gratiot and they go and get some hair on because that, that $5 fix, that $5, $10 fix is the equivalent to an Oxycontin. And now mm-hmm. when they just had that, that, big, uh, that big wave of all these kids up in here, they're taking a bus from suburban uh, uh, areas like Oakland County, Washtenaw County, like where I'm at, Macomb County, going to Detroit, getting hot packs. 
A heroin, I don't understand. I, that's one drug I never took. It, I don't understand it, but when a heroin addict dies, every heroin addict wants that stuff because they call it the good stuff. Absolutely. But what they, but what they didn't know is this heroin was laced with fentanyl. There ain't no coming back from that, baby. Mm-hmm. And so when the, when the fentanyl started, it wasn't a problem when the fentanyl was uh, killing just wall-to-wall blacks and, you know, some wetbacks here and there and maybe some hobby-dobbies. But when these University of Michigan college kids started dying, oh, an investigation was started. And guess where it left? It, it went right to a, a kingpin, a brother, unfortunately. And he's doing an L piece now. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 it's just, uh, what does Malcolm say? This is all just the chickens coming home to roost. Oh, and on uh, that month, note that that uh, the the cop's son that killed the black cop. I don't care. So what? Cop uh, cop just died up here. When you have too many spoiled apples in your organization, you're not an honorable organization. So I have no sympathy for that man down there in Alabama. So what? He can rot in urine for all I care. That's just how I am. Y'all know how I roll. Because it was a black cop that lied on me that took my dream from being a test car driver. So I have no sympathy about that. And that's all I got to say. Y'all can put me on mute. Nene, you want to talk to me for a second? What do you want? Okay. All right. (laughs) Thanks for your contribution, Brother Hayes. Um, Powerful. Um, I think the the heroin issue is going to be an issue until they just take a different approach to drugs. Period. I was watching this um this documentary that was talking about how in Portugal they had one of the worst worst drug problems in the world like maybe 20 years ago. And what they did was they ended up legalizing all drugs. And what, and not only that, but the resources that they took, that they put into having a war on drugs, they actually placed into real tried and true strategies of rehabilitation that were known to work. And now their country is, has one of the lowest drug, drug issues and drug use problems on the planet but it was because they took a different approach and it wasn't just jail them, jail them, jail them like we do here. They actually took that money that they would use to jail them and put it into comprehensive assistance and getting them into programs that could reintroduce them back into society and things of that nature, rather than um, isolating and further terrorizing them by putting them in jail and putting them under the same worst stressors by being in jail than what they were going through to put them, get them using the drugs in the first place. And um, this, I remembered something from my childhood. There was a young lady that I was dating for quite a few years. And that's the, the young woman I was with before I met my wife. And I used to take care of her grandmother before she ended up going blind from bone cancer. And she used to always have Percocets all the time. 
And you made me remember, um, hey, that she used to actually sell them. She was in her 80s. And she actually used to sell the pills. I think it was like um, like $50 a pill or something like that. And you would have different addicts in the project come through because she had like 100-something pills per bottle. And she had multiple bottles. And she would actually break them down even in halves and quarters and all kinds of stuff. And she would have a, a group of customers that would come through every so often before she went blind. And she would actually sell her pills. She had what she needed to deal with her illness, but she had a whole lot extra, and that's how she made a little bit of extra money on the side was by selling pills to some of the addicts and other people in, in, in the surrounding project buildings that um, came to see her, and they came to see her on a regular basis until she ended up in a, a nursing home because she went blind from the cancer spreading. So um, you just actually made me remember that. And when you look at the the whole concept of addiction for the people who become addicts and especially those who are under constant stress because um, there's a lot of people who end up having bad accidents and they end up getting these drugs in order to help them deal with the pain and that's how they end up starting their journey um, into and becoming addicted and then you have other people who they're just actually trying to cope with the stress of everyday life and they find something that they bond with that works for them, that they feel, excuse me, makes them feel as normal as possible without having the stress that they've been carrying all the time. And a lot of those people tend to be non-white people and, and specifically black people. It is, the system is so interconnected with each other, we don't realize how masterful it works, even in regards to addiction, because they, they know that the stresses are there. And these stressors will facilitate people psychologically reaching a state of no return where they just want relief. And it, it kind of reminds me, I had a good friend who was from Detroit. He actually knew, he used to date one of Donald Goyne's sisters and he knew the whole family quite well. So I heard a lot of interesting stories from him just about life in the 60s and in Detroit and what things were like. And I remember he had talked to me about uh, the time that uh, Martin Luther King had gotten killed. And he said when Martin Luther King had gotten killed, there were riots all over the country and Detroit was one of those places that was on fire for real. Like it was it was just no joke, the type of uh extreme things that were taking place. And he said they ended up um bringing the military out there. I remember he said he said that they had tanks in the street, military personnel, and they had a curfew of seven o'clock. So anybody who was caught on the street after seven o'clock, he said it was pretty much shoot on sight. So he had a couple of friends that that were paralyzed and a couple that were killed because they happened to be caught on the street after the curfew and military personnel pretty much point and shot at them. And he said one thing that um, that always stuck with me. He said that prior to Martin Luther King getting killed, you had access to many different drugs and that marijuana was the most available drug in, in the Detroit uh, inner city. He said after Martin Luther King got killed that everything else dried up except heroin. Mm. So all the people had access to was heroin. So he said people who would normally just use marijuana and nothing else and people who would drink alcohol and other drugs, of course, alcohol was always available, but he was like all of the other illicit drugs, especially marijuana, was completely choked off and the only drug available was heroin. And he said he felt that that was something that was done specifically to get as many people hooked on heroin as possible because 
that time frame that from when Martin Luther King got killed and the riots started became one of the most stressful periods for black people in, in the major city in history. So when you're stressed, you're going to seek that relief. And if you smoke marijuana, then you really just aren't, you wouldn't have anything to worry about in regards to addiction. Once they took the marijuana away, he said the vast majority of people who smoke marijuana started smoking heroin instead and eventually ended up becoming addicted. He said he himself even used heroin for a little while, and he said he just hated it. He said he just hated everything about it, and um, luckily he didn't get addicted, but he knew a lot of people that did. And he said uh, some of the people that he knew, they were strictly marijuana users, and once all access to marijuana was completely um, destroyed, pretty much everybody just succumbed to just going for the heroin. It's either heroin or alcohol is what he said. And that was, that's something that stuck with me because we know that the American government is quite capable and has a history of doing things just like that. These experiments. So. <clears throat> hey, but uh, if nobody else has anything to add, you know, you can uh, go on and close it on up. We've been here for a while tonight. It's been a I've enjoyed everybody's uh, input, first and foremost, giving us an insight into your lives. Absolutely. We appreciate you all. And I did want to touch on one last thing before we do leave, because I've been wanting to talk about this, and I know that this will be helpful for Hayes and for other people who um, who suffer from diabetes. So I just wanted to put this out there, because I think it's something that might be really, really helpful. So this is from the silveredge.com and it's entitled Colloidal Silver and Diabetes, a closer look. Is colloidal silver a reliable natural remedy for type 2 diabetes or will it at least help with diabetic symptoms? Unfortunately, to the best of my knowledge, no clinical studies using human subjects with diabetes have ever been conducted in order to determine whether or not colloidal silver can be considered an effective natural remedy for diabetes. But I have discovered five preliminary laboratory, quote-unquote, test tube clinical studies in which researchers claim to have abundantly demonstrated the veracity of the theory that silver nanoparticles, i.e. the very smallest of colloidal silver particles, exhibit profound anti-diabetic activity. What's more, there are some equally interesting clinical studies regarding the use of silver nanoparticles for certain common health problems that commonly afflict diabetics, such as diabetic foot and leg ulcers, candida yeast infections, blood clotting, and more. Finally, there are a number of fascinating anecdotal accounts, i.e. testimonials, for the use of colloidal silver against some of the most deleterious effects of diabetes as well. Here's what I've discovered so far about the growing scientific knowledge of silver's remarkable anti-diabetic properties. Five clinical, quote-unquote, test tube studies on colloidal silver and diabetes. In this first clinical study, researchers used a plant extract to synthesize silver nanoparticles on human blood saturated with glucose in order to test for glucose uptake, uptake into the blood cells, as well as to test for inhibition of the activity of certain enzymes associated with releasing glucose into the bloodstream through carbohydrate digestion. The study, which was entitled, quote, Green Synthesis of Silver Nanoparticles Using Tephrosia Tinctoria and Its Anti-Diabetic Activity, unquote, was published in the Journal of Material Letters, volume 138 in January 2015. The researchers wrote, quote, the anti-diabetic ability of the silver nanoparticles was tested and the results showed significant free radical scavenging ability, inhibition of carbohydrate digestive enzymes, uh, glucosidase and A-amylase, 
and enhancement of glucose uptake rate, unquote. In other words, it appears the silver nanoparticles mopped up the free radicals, which are often generated in excessive numbers in diabetic patients and which can damage the pancreas, inhibit the activity of enzymes that tend to increase blood sugar levels through the digestion of carbohydrates and aided in glucose uptake, all critically important factors for diabetics. The second study, in the second study titled Anti-Diabetic Activity of Silver Nanoparticles from Green Synthesis Using Delonicaria Japonica Leaf Extract, published in 2016 in the Journal of Royal Society of Chemistry Advances, researchers used another type of plant to extract and synthesize silver particles, silver nanoparticles, excuse me. And they then conducted chemical tests. Excuse me, one second, let me just do something real quick. There we go. So they then conducted chemical tests using standard laboratory processes to determine whether or not the silver nanoparticles would effectively inhibit the key enzymes known in diabetics for releasing excessive glucose into the bloodstream. The researchers concluded, quote, the anti-diabetic ability of silver nanoparticles was shown by the effective inhibition against carbohydrate digestive enzymes such as A-amylase and A-glucosidase. According to numerous in vivo studies, the inhibition of amylase and A-glucanase is believed to be one of the most effective approaches for diabetes care. The results suggest that the AGNPs were found to show remarkable potential anti-diabetic activity against the key enzyme of diabetes and were found to be an appropriate nanomedicine for nanobiomedical applications. Based on the result, it is suggested that nano nano silver particles should be used as a nano-anti-diabetic drug. The third study entitled Biogenic Silver <clears throat> Nanoparticles by Halmenia Peripheroides in its in vitro anti-diabetic efficacy published in 2013 in the Journal of Chemical and Pharmaceutical Research. Researchers once again synthesized silver nanoparticles using a plant extract and then tested to determine whether or not those silver particles could inhibit the activity of the carbohydrate digesting enzymes known in diabetics to release excessive glucose into the bloodstream. The researchers concluded that silver nanoparticles exhibited better anti-diabetic activity than the popular anti-diabetic drug Archibos. Here's what they wrote. The present findings suggest, quote, the present findings suggest biosynthesized silver nanoparticles from H. porifrides effectively inhibit both A. amylase and A. glucosidase enzyme in vitro in a dose-dependent manner, which paves the way for the in vivo studies further. The synthesized nanoparticles prove to exhibit better anti-diabetic efficacy against the standard carbos. Therefore, green synthesis methods of silver nanoparticles are a good source of all of these inhibitors, leading a pathway for further use of silver nanoparticles for pharmacological activity. The fourth study published in 2018 in the Journal of Microbiology, Biotechnology, and Food Sciences was entitled Anti-Diabetic Effect of Silver Nanoparticles Synthesized Drug Using Lemongrass through conventional healing and microwave irradiation approach. In this study, researchers wrote once again, researchers once again, excuse me, tested the idea that silver nanoparticles have demonstrable anti-diabetic properties after conducting their research. They too concluded that silver nanoparticles are a potential candidate for being used as an anti-diabetes drug. Quote, biosynthesized silver nanoparticle did not allow the escape of glucose into the external solution by maybe binding or absorbing it and thus can act as a potential drug candidate for the treatment of non-insulin dependent diabetes. 
The synthesized nanoparticles prove to have an anti-diabetic activity clearly demonstrated by the results. This green, thus, this green approach of silver nanoparticle synthesis through microwave irradiated heating can be a fast, economical, eco-friendly approach, and the synthesized nan silver nanoparticle can prove to be a potential anti-diabetic drug candidate. And in yet a fifth study published in 2017 in the Journal of Artificial Cells, Nanomedicine and Biotechnology is titled Exploiting Anti-Diabetic Activity of Nanosilver Part Silver Nanoparticles Synthesized Using Punica Granatum Leaves and Anti-Cancer Potential Against Human Liver Cancer Cells. Researchers also demonstrated that silver nanoparticles exhibited effective inhibition against A-amylase and A-glucosidase, the two enzymes known to release excessive glucose into the bloodstream in diabetic patients. Interesting, the same study also demonstrated that silver nanoparticles are effective against human liver cancer cells. For the sake of space, I won't go into that topic in this article, but if silver's anti-cancer qualities are of interest to you, you can read more about them in my latest book, Colloidal Silver and Cancer, A Surprising Look. The researchers involved in the above study concluded regarding the anti-diabetic activity of silver nanoparticles. Diabetes mellitus is a group of metabolic diseases in which there are high blood sugar levels over a prolonged period. A therapeutic approach to decrease hypo hyperglycemia or excessive blood sugar is to inhibit the carbohydrate digesting enzymes, A-glucosidase and A-amylase, thereby preventing the breakdown of carbohydrates into mon monosaccharides, which is a main cause of increasing blood glucose level. As shown, A-amylase and A-glucosidase were significantly inhibited in a dose-dependent manner by the synthesized silver nanoparticles. The synthesized silver nanoparticles show significant antioxidant and anti-diabetic activity, suggesting metal nanoparticles as a silver metal particles at nanoparticles as a useful application in the field of biomedical free research so once again for the fifth time the silver nanoparticles have been demonstrated by science to inhibit the activity of specific enzymes related to the excessively high levels of sugar in the blood this is also how the prescription anti-diabetes drug acarbose works what's more as in several of the previous studies as discussed above Silver nanoparticles also exhibited, quote, significant antioxidant activity, meaning they help mop up potentially damaging free radicals created during the diabetic disease process. You've likely noticed that in all five studies described above, the silver nanoparticles being used were manufactured using so-called green synthesis, quote-unquote. That simply means rather than using electricity or harsh chemicals to manufacture the nanoparticle silver, natural plant extracts were used instead. Researchers are constantly using different processes to manufacture nan silver nanoparticles because while they can't patent the process used to turn silver into, excuse me, because it's a natural substance they can patent the process used to turn the silver into tiny nanoparticles. Important note, as promising as those five clinical laboratory studies about, uh, uh, described above might sound, it's crucial to understand that diabetics should never attempt to substitute colloidal silver for conventional medical treatment since failure to take prescribed diabetic medication could potentially result in death. So if you want to try colloidal silver as a nutri nutritional adjunct for this condition, please do so only under the direct care and guidance of your diabetes specialist or a trained national health, natural health doctor specifically trained in experience in the holistic treatment of diabetes. So I'll stop there. But I just wanted to put that out there in regards to diabetes and silver. So it seems to help with the, um, the, absorption of, of uh, sugar and, and not allowing that process to happen, especially with carbohydrates. 
but it also will kill the free radicals that further facilitate the disease as well as prevent the sort of gangrenous um, maladies that come with the disease because it's also the world's number one germ killer. So it's like a, a triple threat, I think, if not more, um, in regards to being able to help people with type 2 diabetes mitigate that illness um, and try to uh, improve their health on, in, to, to a point where hopefully at some point they wouldn't have to use drugs at all anymore. And, um, you know, not many people do are able to do that, but some have been able to do that. So hopefully that information helps um, for anyone who either knows a diabetic that's suffering from that, a person who's suffering from diabetes, or if they themselves are suffering from diabetes. Um, was there anything you wanted to add to that, Jenna, before we get ready to close out? Uh, just that... Uh appreciate everybody who tuned in, those who called in, and those who are listening. <clears throat> Excuse me. Absolutely. Those who are listening via the screen. Uh, just always want to thank y'all for uh, participating with us. Hopefully that the conversation yielded something that could help you or a family member. And Absolutely. just to let people know that next week we'll be talking with a uh, <laughs> this guy run across uh running for president name is Dion D Jenkins uh he says he's running on the black agenda the only candidate yes, is. that's running on the black agenda we going to have him here and you can ask whatever questions you have to him this coming Absolutely. up Tuesday yes sir um that is true we we'll have uh brother coming through, uh, Dion D. Jenkins, a presidential candidate. Um, like, like Brother Jenna says, is, um, he's on the black agenda. He's trying to, to even some of the uh, different issues that we or make, make uh, uh, or have a, a just approach to the black experience in this country. So we'll get to find out his thoughts and ideas and his approach to his campaign and you guys and myself in general will also be able to ask questions and just uh, get a deeper understanding for who he is and also um, what he seeks to accomplish once he becomes president or if he becomes president. So it's going to be interesting to be able to uh, just hear more of his thoughts and ideas and ask some questions and really ask some viable questions and, and, uh, maybe expand the way that we view the process of uh, the political process itself. So we'll see how it goes. And, and I think it'll be an interesting conversation to say the least. So I look forward to that. Again, like Jenna said, I would like to reiterate, thank everybody who is listening to the program right now. We greatly appreciate your time and attention um, to those who will listen to the podcast at a later date. Thank you as well. We greatly appreciate your time and attention as well. And right now we're about to say the prayer and get ready to close out. Creator, we ask that you help us to remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us to remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times and all places. Each and every time that we are in contact with another black person, it has been time. Let's replace white supremacy with justice ASAP. And let's also end human trafficking in the prison industrial complex as well. I am in the love of the all, and all love is in me. I am a part of the all, and the all is a part of me. I am one with the all, and the all is one with me. I can succeed as a part of the all and fail as an individual. I can be all that I wish in the all, as long as my wish is to stay in the all. I am never alone. The all is. I am. The all can. I can. The all does. I do. 
Once again, thank you for spending your time with us this evening. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. Stay safe and out of the hands of slave catchers. Please be preemptive and minimize contact to minimize conflict with white people, race soldiers, slave catchers, and most importantly, other black people. Please stay safe. Take good care of yourself. Hopefully you've gotten something of constructive value out of tonight's program, and we look forward to seeing you again next week, Tuesday, Creator Willing. Peace and love. One love. Uhuru and Ubuntu to each and every one of you. Peace. Peace. We'll see you next week. to be bad make me feel so good everything they told me not to was exactly what i would man i tried to stop man i tried the best i could but make me smile what's your addiction is it money is it girls is it we i've been afflicted but not one not two but all three she's got the same thing about me but more about us she's coming over so i guess that means i'm a drugs just let me peek now i mean dang i'm so curious she's got a lover so the lies and the lust is a rush times of the essence i need you to be spontaneous roll up the doja henny and cut cut the cola then i'm coming over because it's ne- never over why everything that's supposed to be bad make me feel so good Everything they told me not to was exactly what I would. Man, I tried to stop, man. I tried the best I could, but... Make me smile. I see the emotion in your eyes that you try not to show. We get the closest when you high or you drunk or you blow. So I pour the potion so we can both get high as we can go. Then I'll get the lotion and do something to me when you die. No turning back now, I mean I don't mean to impose Not now, but right now, I need you to undress and then pose I'm into that now, get your vibe when the doors get closed Roll up the doja, Henny and cup cup the cola And I keep come coming over, cause it's ne- never over uh. Why everything's supposed to be bad, make me feel so good Everything they told me not to is exactly what I want Stop, man, I tried the best I could, but Everything they told me 